Welcome to the ninth episode of the Hashishin. I am your host, Shiragam Amir. I am stoked to be here with Adam, aka Simply Adam, based out of Arcata, California. You can follow him on Instagram at Simply Adam. That's S I M P dot L E E dot A D A M. Adam, thank you so much for sitting down and taking time to chit chat. Dude, I'm super excited. Thanks for having me coming up all the way up here. Yeah, for sure. So again, we're in Arcata, like I was telling you yesterday. This is, I think, the furthest north I've ever been in California. I've been pretty low in, in Oregon, but it's beautiful out here. Higher up north is where you've been. Yeah, higher up north, I guess, technically. But yeah, so you've been here for how long now? Damn, it's weird to think about it. It's been like almost eight, probably in eight or nine years I've been in Humboldt. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good amount of time. So here, I'm 27. I turned 18 in Eureka, in my sister's house, and that's kind of how I got up here. I followed my two sisters. One of them's lived here over 20 years. And yeah, I turned 18 in Eureka, so that's how long I've been here. Cool. (laughs) And so that kind of coincides with what I've heard you describe as your journey in Hash. So can you speak a little bit about, you know, how... that started and where the, you know, I guess driver interest came to be more involved with bubble hash or start making it in the first place. Yeah. So start making it in the first place. I, um, I, I don't even remember the first wash I did to be honest with you, but I do remember the first time that I smoked hash was one tiny piece of black hash that was in the freezer in my brother's freezer. And we were in West Virginia and he had a little one hitter. And we put it in the one hitter and shared it. And I probably, I didn't even get very high at all. But that was my first experience with hash. And then at, at one of the festivals I went to whenever I was 17, maybe even 16, that was like the first time that I ever saw really good weed in different, with different strains. Like people were walking around like, Hey, we got weed, we got, you know, other drugs, right. but I just wanted some weed. So like I, I was looking through this person's backpack and they had different Ziplocs with different, like, you know, sharpie names of different strains and stuff and i was the first time i saw that i was just like wow this is awesome and uh, i'd pick the la confidential and then i get back to my tent and the you know my family and uh this other guy randomly you know a few hours later comes up and he's like we got bubble hash got bubble hash i'm like what bubble hash like so that's hat like what do you mean by bubble like what right let's figure this out and so he came up i told him come up and he uh had little tiny Ziploc, you know, pre-weighed out little Ziploc, tiny little Ziploc bags of bubble hash pressed into little little dimes, basically. It was how big, it, like the size of a coin, okay. little, little coin. And it was actually surprisingly high quality. Like he was, you know, it was definitely some kind of fresh indoor resin that he was, you know, not drying quite properly or whatever, but it was real good, super melty. And that was like my first real experience smoking it. And that's how long ago it was. And then... That was also in West Virginia? Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, that, well, um, yeah, I think West, that's where All Good Festival is, and that's the festival it was at. And then, yeah, so that is West Virginia. I'm pretty sure. It might be Virginia, but I'm, I'm yeah, 80% going with West Virginia. Is okay, all right, cool. Yeah. So that was your first experience or kind of exposure to it. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that it was... Uh, I don't know if it was like traditionally pressed or just like finger pressed or whatnot, but you and I have been talking uh, since yesterday about hash, obviously in general, and just, you know, 
going back to the idea that like traditionally hashish is you know resin that's being pressed and you kind of have a few opinions on that so i'm curious before we get kind of into the rest of your journey if you can kind of give us your take on you know what hashish is and maybe what it will be in the future yeah you're gonna have to catch me if i don't answer the question because i don't think i even answered your last question no we were still talking about your journey and okay, i yeah. want to definitely get no back no that's that. awesome so i i would like you know, search the internet for anything I could find about hash and making hash because I wanted to make it better, you know? And uh, one time, I f that's when I found Essential Extracts, Nicotee, and he's posting all these beautiful pictures of his sieved hash and talking about, you know, how there's specifics when it comes to drying and how you need to pay attention to that. And, you know, I, before, let's go even way back when I was turning 18 in Eureka, we, my brother-in-law taught me how to make hash and we just did it with the five gallon bubble bags and he would hang them up on, you know, to use, like just hang them and walk away. And then, you know, two or three hours later, we'd come back and pull that hash out of the bag with spoon. But so basically using gravity just to let that water. Yeah. Flow. Cause he was a bike mechanic, you know, a mechanic. And so like he would put things up on racks and stuff. So like those clampy racks, I'm not doing just, what is that thing that, you know, you put your bike up on it and you can work on your bike. Right. It's real nice. Almost like a lift. Or yeah, a lift, exactly. And so he would just attach the bubble bags to that, you know, and lift it up. And, uh, you know, the water would just be draining for hours and hours. And then we'd come back. And then how he would dry it is he would, like, either sieve it out or, you know, just use a knife and just, like, scratch it apart and dry it in that kind of way and then put it on paper plates. And then you'd stack the paper plates and even let the hash touch. Like, you would just, you know, buy a thick thing of paper plates and just dry it over and over and over again you'd have this huge tower of paper plates you know and then right. you'd go tediously get it off all those and then you'd have pretty dry hash that was smokable and you probably need to smoke it as soon as possible but that's all <laughs> so that was it. sounds yeah. similar to like the kind of what bubble man was doing and doing like the pizza box cardboard yeah right so instead of the cardboard I, it's like the paper plates right i think i wanted to what where i was going off on a tangent was on the internet you know along with essential extracts and the like matt rise rolled up and stuff i found mila's page the pollinator thing and, and so like her page at one point was curated a little differently i think she's edited it. I, don't, I don't know it's a different page when you go to it now than it used to be and there was this different story where she talked about how like her history in um, himalayan mountain ranges i guess and how she'd run into some people and they really liked keeping that hash unpressed and then when they wanted to smoke it they'd take it out of the cold or wherever you know that region's probably golden so, you know, start pressing it at room temp and, and smoke it then, you know? And so I always thought that was cool. But other than that, I think I wanted to answer how, like, you know, Frenchy folks like that define hashish as pressed resin, not loose resin. And I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of something we touched upon earlier, but I wonder, like I've mentioned a few times to you, if over time the meaning of what hashish is kind of will shift or move because again, it's something that happens just like with words all the time, right? Their meaning changes. Right. And so I, I feel like it's pretty common for people to call what Frenchy would call loose resin or unpressed glands that have been isolated. Hashish is 
kind of like the norm now or becoming more and more common. And so I can't imagine that it's going to become less common. So, you know, in five to 10 years, will hashish still reference this traditionally kind of pressed method or will it just be referencing loose resin, which at that point will be considered hashish? Hmm. Are you saying that folks are, are saying more often than not that hashish can be unpressed or pressed? Is that what you're saying? Like, and so maybe the, the language, you know, maybe we need to just kind of evolve the word and, and use it. Yeah, and, and I don't know even know if it's that, that we need to do it. It's that, that it almost feels like it's just naturally going to happen to me. You yeah, know, yeah. And, and that's why I'm curious to see, like, what you think of that. But yeah, basically. I think it depends, man. Like, how many people of the market really like, you know, Frenchie's the greatest example. So I'll use him again. Like, you know, he'll press hash and they're claiming that all these different terpene constituent or, you know, different terpenes are being created or something when you're pressing them called a shishin. I don't know. I need to read that paper, but <laughs> I think that's all real interesting. And so if you are truly aging that and, and, you know, the quality is backing that and people are digging it and how popular that becomes and, you know, aged hash will last forever. If you have hash from 2000, imagine if you, you know, if it truly was like age, like he says in wine or whatever, just like wine, you know, if that's something that's going to become popular, more popular than it already is, then maybe they'll want that word to stay as pressed hash being hashish. And that traditionally is the way to do it or something. But, you know, traditionally there was people keeping it loose too, and then pressing it when they wanted to smoke it. So right. Like you said about Mila, basically in her experience. Right. So, but I think that it really just came down to like, okay, we need a name for this. Let's call it pressed hash hashish and let's call loose hash hash. And, you know, people won't be as confused or something, but I think it's done, the, you know, we all get confused and we're not all, we're not using the right, <laughs> the right word terminology for a lot of this stuff, you know? Right. It's a lot of bro science style stuff out there, you know? Like we use phenotype for genotype sometimes and we use phenotype for chemotype sometimes and words like that, you know, but if we're all understanding and on the same page when we're talking to each other like that, then, you know, there's nothing, I don't know. I think that people, yeah, I don't know where to go with that. Sorry. No, <laughs> that's cool. No. Yeah. I, again, it's just out of curiosity and yeah, again, I don't know what, what will happen. And like you said, maybe press hash will gain popularity More because popular. of its ability to like age maybe in a different way. And, right. you know, and I guess that's the whole concept of pressing, like you said about like, it maybe lasts longer in a sense that you're creating a mass of resin, which is impenetrable. And inside of the outer kind of crusty layer is like this resin that's been kind of kept. So that's interesting to me, but you know, just with like so many younger people getting into, I guess, cannabis and getting into cannabis concentrates, like it's not typically, I think that what they're exposed to. So unless there's like a big change in exposure, I don't know. Well, it might be if that, you know, because that's a great business model. Yeah, I mean... Like, that's the first hash I saw, you know, for right. example, or probably you too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Amsterdam, it's a common, it, yeah. was all the, it was all pressed. So, Except, I guess, the isolator maybe was the exception at that point. But that was really new back in, like, 2003, or at least that's the way it seemed. But, yeah, you know, you and I have talked about uh, Nasha extracts, which is, they're also up here. Yeah, killing right? it. And, you know, it's a very, it looks like a very solid, like business model right and absolutely it's, it's like a 
It's pressed hash mostly. I think is what they produce. I think they'll do they'll do loose resin too. And Will they? you know, I think that it. You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot, sometimes a lot of it is dabbable. You know, or whatever cleanly vaporizes. Right. I've seen press. You know, I think that they like playing around and try to bring something different. Yeah, but yeah, it's a different model than mm, a lot of the other models that I've seen. Not playing around, but like you know, trying to dial in what they like to do and, and experimenting with other methods too and not just being linear like you know not i mean you know like me like i just great i grate hash and then i put it in a jar and i keep it cold and you know i like to if i'm gonna keep a lot of it cold put put it in those quarter ounce mason jars and then like seal that maybe even twice with the vacuum seal okay and then put it in the freezer i always like doing that some folks don't they just put the put the jars right in the freezer that's so this you is know, right I'm sure after. that that isn't that much better or something. But for me, to me in my head, I just like to do that. It's it you might know, be that's nice. your practice. Yeah, you know. And I'm curious, a, I guess what you feel that does, and then b, my question was like, when you're jarring it up like that, is that coming off the drying racks, like right? Directly from the drying racks into the jar, into the vacuum, into the freezer. So, you know, whenever it's Whenever I'm in that cold room and I'm scraping it all up and putting it in jars, I stack those jars to the side neatly, and those are sitting there. So it'll take me probably maybe an hour, forty, you know, to to scrape up 150, 200 grams or something like that, more like 100 to 200. That's like my max out. I can't, you know, I only have two racks, and sometimes if I'm really loaded up like that, then I would set the trays in like how they normally go in the baking rack, but then the next one on top of that sideways so that they don't, you can crisscross them and do double the amount of trays in two things, you know, cause I'm limited on space. So yeah, that would be my max is like a hundred, 200 grams in a 10 or 12 hour period is dried, you know, and then it, and then it goes right into the jar. And then I set those aside neatly for like 45 minutes to an hour to get me, get it all in those jars neatly, all the micron specific, you know, and then I'll put them in vac seal bags and back seal those bags. I mean, you know, back seal those jars and put them in the freezer. And or, you know, if it's a dry material run, which I don't really do that much on, but I used to do it a lot, like soak the material for 15 or 20 minutes before you ever go to agitate it so that you can make sure that you're not messing with like a brittle plant that's causing all kinds of other plant like contaminants in there. Right. That's something that good hash makers do is they soak that material if it's super dry. They know to rehydrate it, obviously, but where was I going with that? Oh, if it's a dry material, you know, I'll just go. I'll just put that hash in the fridge. I probably won't even seal it up and try to. So if it's working from dry material, <laughs> yeah, and you make the hash and you dry it, you'll jar it and put it in the fridge. Yeah. As opposed to if you're working with fresh frozen, you're vacuum sealing it and it's going in the freezer. Yeah, because I want it to stay almost very similar to how it was when it came off the baking racks it'd be cool you know that's the goal obviously you know is settling on itself in the freezer too right and and it's going to be a different thing but it's all it's as close as you can get to like right there freshly off the baking rack and there's something to say about taking it directly off the baking rack and smoking it then or whatever and then waiting a few days and letting them that all those land heads settle with each other, like all of them in a mass, you know, like let's say a 120 micron fat jar, 120 micron, it's just all sitting together. 
instead of immediately going for that tray and smoking it, I mean, that's, you know, how, a one way you can judge if it's truly dry or not, too, is to just dab a little bit of one of those trays. But my, this, point, my point is that, that there's something about waiting for two or three days that just, like, makes it a little, little bit more enjoyable. Maybe it's just because I'm working with so much of it and I'm like so used to it at that point. And then like going in on a tiny dab from one of those trays just isn't like the greatest because I'm so immune to that flavor for some reason in that room. You know, there's a lot of, you know, there's terps evaporating at a room temp and going off into the atmosphere and you're smelling that. And right. I'm definitely grating glandular trichomes completely. You know, sometimes the heads are staying staying intact and I'll look at that and be like, whoa, like look how many of these heads like stayed intact. I took a cheese grater to this. <laughs> like, right. But at the end of the day, you're grating the shit out of some glandular trichomes. And I admit to that for sure. But I think that what's important to know or, or at least think about is, or at least think that it might be real just, just in case is what if the water got inside that gland head, you know, and like all this fruit, like, fruit like the metaphor about the fruit coming off the tree like Frenchie I keep bringing Frenchie up because he's just so I like the way he comes up with different things and you know he's very open and talking about all this stuff so you know the tree shaking the tree and the fruit coming off well that you know imagine you're at an apple tree or whatever that the apple the thing plucks off the the fruit plucks off the tree and it where that hole where you know what what is that called the yeah, where it connects to the stem, yeah. essentially, when it breaks off. Right. Now, you know, now if you ran water all over that apple, it's not like a bunch of water would go in that apple. But now walk two or three feet down the other side of that tree, and you'll find a fruit that's not perfect, you know? And it will. You know, there's a hole in it. And it, and I don't think that all glandular trichomes are perfect. And then, they, you know, what if, just what if, just think about it, like, what if? these hundreds of thousands or whatever millions of trichomes that you're dealing with one or two or 200 of them have holes in them or where that broke off it there's a little tiny piece of it that's not hydrophobic or whatever you know and so i like shredding that up i mean i like making sure it's dry and not over drying it and all that but yeah I, this kind of leads me to the blind tasting thing i like how competitions they do that whole number scheme where it's like, you know, the number, but you don't know, you know, and you know, you can see it, you can see the concentrate. And so there's a number on it and that's all, you know. And so like, that's blind testing, I guess. But what I think is blind testing is if you have a, whatever, let's call them a dab tender and they are in front of you and they have put a blindfold on you and you don't know what's inside the jar. Like you don't get to see like, Oh, it's white. Oh, it's black. Oh, it's amber orange whatever like you don't get to see that and it'd be cool if like maybe you smell it after you take a dab or you smell it before you take a dab maybe people need to figure out what the best practice is there but getting like a true blind tasting going it would be so sweet because then you would get like a truly unbiased view of what let's say a really high quality full what people call full spectrum like a 45 to a 180 or a 150 or something, if you were to vaporize that cleanly on a nail for the person and they didn't have to fuck around with the torch and figure out how to smoke your specific concentrate properly, if you were to vaporize that really cleanly, what would they say about a full spectrum, you know, a second or third wash versus a first wash 90? You know, I'm sure they'd know the difference, but what are these words that they'd come up with to describe it, you know, when they don't get to see it and they don't get to see that meltiness and that, like, 
everything about that experience, you know, is, is almost you're putting your blinders on. And so that's truly unbiased. And I don't know. Yeah. We've been talking about that since yesterday. And I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, like, I think maybe the like logistics or the practicality of it yeah, might it's be not, a little difficult, it's logistical, yeah. but at the same time, like, I think it would be a very interesting way to, for people to maybe just a small scale competition, you know, maybe, or maybe not even competition. Maybe it's just a small thing, but a gathering something, something like that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Probably when you take out essentially one of the biggest senses, right. When it comes to experiencing something, which is like vision. Yeah. Right. So when you take that out, I think that obviously is also going to shift more, maybe awareness to some of the other senses. Right. And so, That'd be yeah, interesting. yeah, it would be interesting. It's all kind of reminds me of one of the Seattle coffee expos up in, yeah, in Seattle, they have these huge gathering, like in the coffee world where people bring all the espresso machine, like new espresso machines and sell all their equipment at this thing up called the Seattle coffee expo. And Alan Adler was there selling his AeroPress device. It's just like that oversized syringe I was showing you. Yes. And, uh, it's a really neat coffee maker, but anyways, he, he claims that like it makes espresso coffee and it makes American coffee, right? That's like what he puts on the box. And so all these espresso nerds and geeks would like come up to him and give him all kinds of shit because it's like, no, dude, you're not making espresso with your AeroPress. Like that's just a two, you're putting a, what, about 16 pounds of pressure on that. And espresso is like nine bar, like multiple bars of pressure. So there's no way that that's espresso. And they come at him with all these definitions of what true espresso is and stuff. And he's like, all right, hold on a second, guys. Let's go in here. Let's do a true blind testing. And he pulled shots off a of La Marzocco, or who somebody did, like a professional like barista or whatever, okay. came and like did the La Marzocco thing. And that's like a really high quality Italian espresso machine, just so people don't know. And you, it's very common. It's like almost like what made Starbucks famous was the La Marzocco espresso machine. You know, they were, the Linea is uh, like those first Starbucks machines that they started using. But I don't I honestly don't know as much as I think I know about it. But anyways, it's a famous espresso machine company in Italy. And uh, so, and you know, thousands of dollars these things cost. And you know, the AeroPress costs thirty dollars. So they were blind tasting something that cost thirty dollars, and something that cost seventy five hundred or five thousand, or you know, at, at the minimum, right? right? And, you know, they they get into thirty hundred thousand dollars for these espresso machines, commercial scale, so that they can crank out the right temperature and the right pressure and flow rate, all this stuff consistently. That's hard to do at that bar of pressure. And so it's kind of needs to be expensive because it's a piece of machinery. So they blind test it. And the majority of these espresso aficionados, you know, couldn't tell the difference between the AeroPress and their La Marzocco espresso machine, you know, and there's less acidity in it because of that paper filter and the way that he designed it. And you can, you extract it at 175 degrees. So he like kept in mind all this temperature and stuff and, had them little cups of, and to taste and all of them with the blind tasting love the AeroPress coffee. You know, it's not like they didn't love it before it, but I just think that's interesting, you know, and totally relatable to what we were just talking about. Yeah. So a bunch of things that to, to dissect there. One, obviously I through your feed and keeping up with you and hanging out with you. I know you got a love for coffee. <laughs> um, yeah, it gets weird. <laughs> Concentrated sunlight. <laughs> and then, you know, but so various things. One thing is 
tools, right? So we've been talking about tools the past couple of days and how a lot of times maybe simplicity has a lot of power to it, you know? So in relation to these machines that you're talking about for the coffee making, you know, I'd like for you kind of to talk about maybe some of the tools that you use that you feel are like pretty effective. Yeah, totally. um, And then, you know, outside of that, kind of on a second note, going back to this idea that you were talking about flow rate okay. uh, with coffee, and you've mentioned the term God shot a few times to me, okay, yeah. and comparing that kind of to the quartz nail, right, in cannabis or with hash at totally. least. And so if you could touch upon both Shit, those you... points. So first is the tools. Okay, the tool. Okay, and then okay, the okay. second is like the flow rate God shot concept. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain what's truly in my mind, but I just love well-designed tools. And, you know, I mean, this is like the most ridiculous example, but the spoon, everybody's using this really nice little spoon. It's a specific shape. And uh, I don't know, man, I got a like fetish for like spoons and jars and cut like coffee cups. Like I like the perfectly shaped coffee cup and the thickness of it, storing heat and all that stuff. Like I like well-designed things and, you know, bubble bags, like that's a great, whatever, like other brands too. It's a great filtration, the filtration bags, you know, that's a great tool. You can manipulate them however you want and you can control that flow rate essentially which maybe some folks do or don't pay attention to. And I know a lot do like, like on the, um, one of the, I think it was like just a little bit after or during the roll it up days or whatever, Matt Wright's like posted one of those YouTube videos of him making ash. And it's just him, like the washer, you know, and he shows you how to, you know, put the ice in the washer and make the hash and pour it in the bags and all that stuff. And he gets to the 150 bag or whatever bag, you know, I don't know. I don't remember what bag it was like a 120, 90, 70, one of, either one of those. There's like green, you know, in it. And so like, if you know the flow rate and you've pulled up some water in there, you can swirl that bag around and spray, you know, it's just your normal pump sprayer or just with clean water, pour it in there. And if you're lucky that chlorophyll will just wash right out. And it's because you're swirling it and the flow rate of that water coming through with gravity or because of gravity and, you know, because it'll clog up in there because of the hash, it'll build up and then the water will pool up. But it's like people don't like that pool up. But I bet if you pay more attention to that pool up, you'll start to like it because you can take advantage of that flow rate. And that's all I that that's um, sorry. I went off on a little tangent there, but no, tools, so tools, but I mean, like, how would and then you a little miniature. That? A little miniature bong, sorry, dude. A little miniature bong is a great tool, right? Like it's doing everything that you love and it's not as much aeration like some of the pieces Wes Griff Destruct makes. He designs them so that there's not a bunch of aeration in there and like something about that and quartz or sapphire or whatever people are doing nowadays, like there's something about that flavor that you get off that that is just, in my opinion, superior to any other way to do it. I mean, other than that thing on the go, I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> that thing's sick. We tried it in the car earlier. What's it called? Yeah, so this is the Stores and Bickles Mighty. It's one of their like portable devices, essentially. And that's typically what I use, which I know a lot of people kind of find maybe weird. or. I think it's so underly hyped. Like, that thing should be used. We use that in the car, and it surprised me. Like, you know, it's not perfect, but dude, yeah. that thing does way better than any vape that I've ever, you know, got, try to go out on the go and try to... Dab full melt or smoke full melt is that's 
I like that thing. I'm going to get one of those just because it's so cool. Yeah, I love <laughs> this thing. I've been through can a few of them <laughs> already. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, my question is, can you soak those little cylinder things that you pack? No, see, that's the, I alcohol? guess I would say that's kind of one of the downfalls to it is like, it's based like on this. So you um, can burn it off though? No, you can't. Like once they get, I guess, too saturated with oil and I'm talking about the little pads, there's these little pads that go inside these units uh, where you actually load, you know, the hash or rosin or whatever it is that you have. Once that gets too saturated with oil, it's pretty much none. You can't reuse that. Right. So you have to just like keep buying pads, almost like Q-tips, right? They designed that planned obsolescence in there. Yes, for sure. That's good. For sure. So that's, that's the kind of wasteful part that I don't, I don't particularly care for, but outside of that, it's, yeah, it's great. But yeah, I mean, you know, back to like the nail, you know, so you feel that's kind of the, the epitome of like being able to get, do you feel like there can be anything that comes along that could be superior to that? I'm sure there, maybe, maybe there already is like the silk. I've always wanted to try that Sapphire. Actually I did, but it's not like I had time to sit down with it. Wes Destruct had it at one of those Emerald Cups, but I didn't get to sit down and really try to test it out all day and, and hang out with it, you know? Right. But I'm sure that there's something that is either just as good or better. Yeah. That, um, what is it called, the Sapphire? You know, it was red, or I don't know. They call them rubies or something. I yeah, I'm, I'm so uneducated about that, so I, I, I don't not know the either. person that for sure. I honestly um, don't know. I just saw it. But that kind of leads me into something that you talked about, again, uh, off air and this was kind of this uh, you called it the waves of hash and coffee right well also the god shot too yeah that's what that's something i know i'm sorry I, we, we apologize to keep relating this back to coffee but i'm <coughs> totally obsessed with coffee and i drink it like every four hours <laughs> and uh i don't know if you can tell but i'm highly hyped up on coffee, coffee right now i can barely talk and i'm so anyways, as am I, because yeah, I've so, been getting plenty of coffee from Adam, which I appreciate. <laughs> right on. So whenever you make good coffee, it's always good if it's not bitter and astringent, you know? And so there's people that are high up in the coffee industry that have kind of figured out how to set themselves apart from the rest by keeping in mind the temperature, the flow rate, and these brew ratios. And so like you weigh the grinds, the you know, ground bean coffee, you weigh that. And then you weigh how much water passes through that. And you can either under or over extract that coffee. And you can, you know, extract byproducts that, that are not good flavors. And, you know, people are even using minerals in their water now and, and setting it, dialing in their water so that their water extracts all the right things from the coffee. And so the goal of it is to grind the coffee. While you're grinding it, you're smelling all that goodness of the coffee. And for some reason, it never tastes like that in the cup, right? But there are people out there that that's their goal is to get that grind smell, the smell that you smell in the supermarket when you're walking by and it's just like, oh my God, it smells like great coffee on that aisle. It's amazing. Well, they want that in the cup. They want that flavor in the cup to taste. And so they'll fuck with all those variables and make a perfect shot. But back in the day, when they were working on the espresso machines and doing that, they would make perfect shots randomly and they didn't really know why it was coming out the way it was. It was just like they happened upon the perfect brew ratio and the perfect flow rate and the temp maybe was just on point that day or something and whatever. Like, you know, the humidity and the beans, all of that is like has to do with the way that it flows through into the cup and extracts and the grind size and all that. So 
how we've kind of dialed in the dab on the quartz nail is almost how they've dialed in the espresso, a little cup of espresso that tastes like how it was grinded. If you really put in all that effort into those variables, you know, it's tedious and people are, there's different waves of, you know, ways of thought about it and arguments, even in that world, you know, all about that, you know, it's a, it's a craft in itself. And, and a, pe- well, a lot of people don't know is uh, coffee is a beet, like a, a fruit, you know, that was a fruit and it tasted like a little tiny tart little pomegranate and it, you know, it's citrus, like something is really tasty about that little fruit. I've tried it before. And then inside that, that's where the bean is. And then you roast that bean and all of these factors play in roasting and all these factors play in extracting. And then at the end of the day, like what you're drinking in the cup is less bitter and astringent because of those things. And like people would call that the God shot when they get this perfect shot. I hear people talking about that. And, you know, that's a lot like that perfect dab that you've taken in all those variables, the temperature, the time, you know, people walk around with little timers, you know, like they're dialing, they're getting, they're getting it all dialed in just like the barista does with coffee on the nail. I don't know. Just want to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to, I guess, kind of relate that to, so outside you have a small little project that you're growing uh, some banana OG in your garden. Yeah. And we were out there looking at that earlier and you mentioned about how you work uh, with a farmer who uh, isn't consuming cannabis for, you know, whatever their personal reasons are, Mm -hmm. but that farmer's always impressed by how, when you bring the hash back to them, it's a, you know, very similar concentrated representation of what their garden was <laughs> like. And like you said, they enjoy like the aromatherapy or like uh, right. the smells and stuff. She like really, you know, she grows every, you know, a lot of different stuff she's interested in growing in other than cannabis, obviously. And like the, you know, she likes growing everything if it'll grow well in that area. And so, so whenever you're walking through the beginning of it, you're experiencing all these different essential oils coming from all different kinds of plants. And uh, she's actually the first so we saw actually growing hops in her garden. We were like, well, we don't want to do that. So Kiki got some hops from, I think, the co-op or no, farmer's market. I don't know. She got a hop plant. We planted it back there. And it's cool to watch the hops flower and produce trichomes right next to your cannabis producing trichomes. It's really neat. And they're in the same family, I think. So that's cool. But yeah, the aromatherapy, she really, you know, THCA, like the high, these cultivars that we're running, it probably, you know, make the, makes them a little paranoid. They don't, or they're not down as down as they were at least maybe back. Right. And so, but they still do like growing it and smelling it and, and experience, you know, there's a whole other experience and to, you know, it's interesting to, to these flavors that come off of cannabis because they're a lot like other terpenes that are on other plants, but it's like, it's almost like a mixture of them all in a nug and it's just a trip. Like what is going on? Why do they have all these compounds? going on in there i don't get it and why are they in like super nice little glandular trichomes that are some of them hydrophobic and we can collect and clean like what the fuck so yeah, yeah it's pretty wild it, it's fun to, for them to trip out on it other than you know even though they don't smoke it is my point yeah right and and so like whenever i bring them a jar and it smells super similar to what the live plant smelled like that kind of brings us back to how like for years I was running just their dry material and, you know, kind of the byproduct of their garden and gaining a relationship. And they didn't ever feel 
you know, it's not like they were, I guess they were maybe scared to put it in the freezer or didn't, you know, were just, that was just alien to them. They didn't know, you know, people, they heard about it, but anyways. Because up until that point, they were basically growing for cured flour, right? Or like to sell. Right, right, right. right? Yeah, totally. And um, so, yeah. Which I So whenever I bring a jar of the resin that was frozen and, you know, they're there when they're, we're prepping it, they're helping prep they're experiencing those flavors that they just experienced in their garden right there in the jar. And it's just like, whoa, all right. Like, okay, maybe we should be freezing it, you know? <laughs> right. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. And that's, again, something you told me that, like, you just kind of you giving your input as to what should be done with the material is something that grew over time as they, as you both kind of gained, I guess, maybe trust in each other in your working relationship. Yeah, Totally. Um, so that was interesting because, you know, nowadays you just freezing is seems so commonplace, especially when I'm talking to the people who are mostly handling like frozen material. <clears throat> right. But to hear a farmer kind of be, I don't know if resistant is the right word or just kind of it be so foreign to them that they, it was kind of like, oh, should we do this or not? It's right. kind of funny. Yeah. That Well, you know, they're so good at doing what they're doing and that was just the thing to do yeah you know but i'm sure other guard like oh, plenty of people were freezing it and so it's not like they weren't seeing that it's just whenever it's from their garden and they tended to those plants and then they they smell those same flavors it's kind of a trip like it takes that proof like almost like you know i don't know like they pop that bubble that that was there because they they're experiencing the garden in the jar i can't really explain it how, right. how it all happens in the moment you know no that's cool so kind of like shifting back to your journey in Hush, right? So you mentioned you had a couple of experiences out in West Virginia. Then you ended up moving out here eventually. And, you know. And I spent a lot of time in Texas there. I went to high school there in Texas. Okay. And uh, I have no bad beef on Texas. I just, at the time, I was I would get in trouble with weed there and like cops profile you, you know, and whatever. And uh uh, anybody like they're just looking to get money and so my parents were you know worried about that obviously and so that's why I got sent to Guantanamo Bay that's, yeah that's right <laughs> and, you're uh, later about. on so but yeah it's been years in Texas like I have a lot of cousins and family there and my grandma's there and friends are there and then I moved to California when I was and I turned 18 in Eureka in California so that's right when I moved here that's kind of how I know, like, oh, I moved to California right when I turned 18. That's a good, I know exactly when I came to California. Right. And then, uh, yeah, but whenever I was 17, I was in Guantanamo Bay for six months. It's like doing scuba diving. And when I look back on it, it was just such a cool experience. Like, my dad is so awesome and my parents are so awesome. And, like, they just worried about me getting in trouble in Texas. And they sent me to this amazing place that at the time I was like, what the hell? I'm being sent to Guantanamo Bay. You know, like, there was beaches there. And, you know, just to give you an idea, like, there's a KFC Taco Bell hybrid. Like, that's how kind of like the feel. It's like a small town feel where, like, there's just one jerk chicken place. And, uh, it's small and you know all the roads out there and there's like beaches where there's just, it's all glass, just little beads of glass everywhere. So they call it glass beach. Okay. And multiple beaches like that there. And I'd go scuba diving, amazing like coral reef, that, that part of the ocean, you know, world is great. Like I don't scuba dive around here because it's so fucking cold and there's, you know, sharks and stuff. But I mean, there's sharks there, but I'm just, 
the, just the very great, different. I think the great white sharks come out here to mate and stuff. And it's just always really tripped me out. I've seen on like Lost Coast Outpost, the news.com website or whatever. One day it was like people saw three or four shark sightings and got them on video. And they're all in like kayak in different places of the county. And they didn't know each other had seen it. You know, they all posted it. And then the news had posted all of them. I was like, damn, like there are sharks for sure out there. I, you know, they're not going to hurt you, but people do get hurt occasionally. Right. I would like to not be that person. <laughs> Well, the, but that was a cool experience that you had. And I know you said, like, you, I guess, started to go to school eventually because you just didn't have, like, a lot to do in a way in a small town like that. But you were, like, the only civilian, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and they were on the quarterly system. So not, like, a whole full semester. It was shorter in tidbits and, like, at night. So it was night school on the quarterly system for people in the military and the Navy right. to get school done while they're while they're cranking out the other work they're doing and uh so yeah i was like one of the few civilians there going to school it was interesting and see classes there and then that same college came to the states and in california was doing online courses and then i finished my two-year degree just a general education degree and then i was like you know what like i think that's when i took a year off from school but like my parents like my mom wants me to get like what really wants me to get a degree like a degree so i was like all right mom i'll do it and we did it and so like i went to school hsu humboldt state university here did the whole like environmental science thing super broad major but you know degree in environmental science got that over with and that just happened to me so like that's why i'm talking about it like i just graduated and uh figuring out what i'm doing with my life now and like don't like have to go to school like other kids are walking to school and i'm just like whoa like i've got to walk to school Cool. Yeah, so this is kind of like a little college town you were saying. And, yeah, totally. Um, well, That's why. I thought it was kind of funny as you said that, you know, in a way it kind of reminded you of Montana Bay in the sense that it's like kind of a small place. That, almost, almost. Like yeah. it's just smaller, the less people when there's no students here that part of the year. And then, you know, you almost know every road. And if you come upon a road that you don't know, it's weird. You know, you're like, what? Right. Because you know all the road and it's so small. That's yeah. all I meant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tiny little Navy base. And it's, yeah. yeah oh, cool. And so, so you ended up moving up here. And what, what would you say is like the first time that you, I guess, tried refined glandular trichomes, as you call them? Yeah. So I had all my friends, like, that were gardeners around here, bring me trim when they could and stuff. And one time this friend of mine named Austin brought me OG three and we were all like, what's OG three? Let's do this. And it ended up just being like, we barely had to clean the trim, you know? And so did the whole thing and process and it came out like real, real good. And I was like, wow. And so we really got to pay attention to drying that stuff. And so I did, got it all done quick and had figured out like a workflow at that point. And that's when it was like, okay, this hash can get good. Like, this is real good. <laughs> like, what? Like, this is melting like nothing I've seen before. And it has like an aura to it. <laughs> it's like, you want to get really weird with it, which I guess we will, because this is a hash podcast. <laughs> but um, I think that like, I just like so badly like want to bring it up, but don't want to bring it up because I'm pretty sure people are going to think I'm totally strange. But I think that high quality hash 
has like this aura to it. Like it's almost like purple pink, like super high quality white. You know, people think it's just white, but if you really look at it in the right light, maybe it's the light refracting off of it or something, or I'm just seeing it making up things. But there's something about really highly refined clean hash in that micron window of like 60 to 150 or whatever, you know, that 180 that uh, has this like transparent, like, man, I wish I could explain it. Almost like a film, like a pink aura to it. Like, like almost like when you, I don't know, I can't go off on that because I'll just, I can't even explain it. So yeah, but, but th- people there's made- a certain element, like a, almost like a extra element that you see to resin that's, that you find to be like almost elite, elite, not only refined, right. but like grown resin. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, and you've been working with some pretty, I mean, look, I, again, I, I told you last night, like it may be a kind of a weird thing, but your hash is always real sexy. I mean, <laughs> that, the, you know, I don't know if it's in part the microplaning and you know, it being properly dried, but I think it's just that a lot Thanks, of it bro. is coming like the resin. Also, the farmers are doing an amazing job. Yeah, no, definitely. There's just something about really tending to your soil and making sure that all that is working properly before you ever try to grow a plant. You know, there's something about that amazingness of the soil and the humus that makes up our bodies, you know like the you know the humus that creates fruit and veg like all that stuff that we're eating is also you know essentially creating us like or you know at least like keeping us going and so it's it is the soil that we should be paying attention to and you know that's one of biovortex you know that's his conceptual art pieces to try to show people that you can do that and that it's a system that there's a loop and you need to pay attention to it, cover cropping, all this stuff is good stuff, you know, look into it and, and, uh, try to get, try to get it dialed in. You know, you got all this other stuff dialed in. There's no reason why you can't get a really nice no-till garden dialed in. And maybe you'll find out that it's a little bit easier and cheaper and grows great drugs. Right. So just, yeah. Yeah. Just plants in general, totally. you know, I think having health in your soil and, Again, I know you said you're not like a huge fan of the word or whatever, but kind of the regenerative mindset, you know. Of oh no, I'm a, I'm a fan of the word. I just mean I just what I meant by that when we were talking that off that off air is like folks have been gardening this way forever, and and that's what the the smart folks in the regenerative movement are preaching is what what you know indigenous folks and and a variety of places around the world have been preaching for. A long time and like for example terra preta i hope i'm pronouncing it correctly i mean it doesn't matter if i'm not but terra preta or something like that those words i think mean black earth you know something like that and it's in the amazon rainforest this amazing soil that there's proof that it's human induced like you know thousands of years ago people were building this soil and uh that's kind of where biochar from the science that has been done on that soil how it yields nine times the amount of crops than, you know, if you were to put another soil up next to it, normal, and it just regenerates itself. You know, it's, it's a constantly regenerating thing that was started by indigenous folks in the, in the rainforest where the rainforest, I think is the, the soil super acidic. So like, even though there's all this, you know, amazing biodiversity in the rainforest, really, if you were to chop that down and grow palm or, you know, start producing palm oil, and monocropping that rainforest, basically, you'd only be able to do that once or twice or whatever. I'm not, I've never done it. I don't know, but 
I've heard that you can only do that once before you start having to add in, you know, all the right. Wire. You kind of break that. It's acidic soil, so it's you know you're gonna have to add in what you need to to make that right again, so you can grow in it again. And uh, so the rainforest is doing that naturally. You know, has a really nice dynamic system to it, right. and it's super efficient because it's like amazing. It's been there for whatever people know. I don't have to tell them, but uh, so that soil has been studied, terra preta soil, and it's kind of what is popularized biochar. Biochar is like something people use now, even in the cannabis world and all over now it's they they and i think they either inoculate it or they they put biology into that biochar and then sell it just like they sell bags of soil or bags of minutes or whatever and uh that biochar you know so they have proof that these people thousands of years ago were building the soil and burning not slash and burn but they had some really high like tech weight not you know some really smart way to burn that and use that energy from that burning and, you know, turning your soil and you're constantly making sure. And so you'll find patches in the rainforest of this terra preta soil. I just highly recommend somebody looking it up if they're interested or have never heard about it or something. I'm sorry that I'm chopping it up. But, um, yeah, people should just look into it because it's real cool to check out. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. But, I, I, again, I think it, like, I mean, that obviously is, it's interesting on its own. But, you know, it all, I think, relates to kind of like the health of the soil. Yes. The health of the plants. And then the health of the resin, you know, and I guess regards to like cannabis and hash specifically. And so you mentioned BioVortex. I know you've been working with them for a few years, but prior to, you know, working with them and maybe some of the other people that you've worked with, what were some of the early, you know, strains or, and, you know, maybe you can clarify this a little bit. I know cultivars is kind of a term that's being used more so now. So I don't know what's more proper, but what are the kind of I early think cultivar strains? is more proper. Okay. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what. Yeah. yeah. Strains is, you know, some, a word that like, I'm used to. And I think a lot of people are used to that maybe are like my age or even a little younger. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it was just what everybody called. Yeah. No, I, I don't mean to, I don't even know. Like I can't tell people how to talk and stuff. I don't, <laughs> I didn't come up, and I think even the person that came up with, like, for example, Indica and Sativa, Robert Clark, is also like wrote that bubble hat, one of those. I forget the name of the book, but it's Hashish. about bubble hashish. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I read that, and that's where he talks about how you can catch gland heads in a 500 micron. I really hope I'm getting this right because I remember it. It was a long time ago when I read it, but I was like, what? 500 micron? All right. Like, let's get this going, 500 <laughs> micron. <laughs> but uh, uh, what was they saying? about him oh he wrote this other book or whatever and, and it has introduced the sativa indica concept right. and now I think he's introducing an even further concept I don't feel comfortable talking about it because I haven't sat down or ever really heard a lecture from him or whatever you know I don't I need to look into it a little more before I feel confident talking about it but, yeah but I think you're right I think he's moving into kind of like a new now it's like broad leaf thin leaf varieties it's, I see it's yes. like the new totally. but I don't know that much about it either so but you know yeah so what were some of the first cultivars that you were working with when you started making hash, you know, after that experience that you had, like, where your, was it your brother-in-law you said was hanging it from the bike rack? Oh, and, right, 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 right. So then yeah, when that you was started making it? Like, totally. Um, so what happened was, like, he taught me that, and I was like, and then another thing I didn't say there was what I thought was interesting from that, besides the paper plate drying tech thing, which is just whatever, all, you know, he made his own ice. And so he would make, you know, those things like that salsa comes in, like the containers, plastic containers, yeah. that like 
something like that you get in the store. Well, he'd stack those up and recycle those, you know, and clean them. And then he'd fill those with water. And so you'd have big chunks of frozen things instead of going to the store and buying a bunch of ice and having all those plastic bags of ice and just a shit ton of ice, you know, and a lot of plastic bags. So he would do that. And I was like, that's all, that's real cool. Like, I like that. I'm going to just make my own ice. And then, you know, years later I read that on rolled up, like how Matt made his own ice and Mary's made his own ice and stuff. And other folks do, and you know, it's super smart to make your own ice. If you can, if you, if you have that kind of scale, you know, I, I totally understand the machine too. I don't, you know, it is what it is, you know, but yeah, everybody but, kind of works with what they got, but you know, since you brought ice up, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about it, especially okay. because you brought up like, you know, hand making it. And I know, for example, Matt Rise has always been a kind of proponent of that. And like, you know, I wonder kind of the reasoning, first of all, behind why you think it would be a better option. Like, is it just more durable? Can it be cleaner? I mean, like, what is some of the so motivation the, behind that? I mean, at the end of the day, the only reason is because it's, I know it's clean because those ice trays are easily cleanable and it's a frequent thing. And so it's clean ice, period. And the second reason is because those thick ice, like even Matt Rise on one of those videos, subcool videos, he's like in CCA, one of those older dispensaries back in the 215 era. And he's explaining how the bigger ice trays it just makes total sense when you think about it. The, the bigger ice ice will is more dense, or I don't know, it's just bigger and it will last longer. And so, if you set it up next to a piece of chipped ice, for example, or just a you know a smaller piece of ice, it's going to melt quicker. So, like if you put a bunch of smaller pieces of ice in that water slurry mm-hmm. or in that you know, it's going to melt a little quicker. And you know. But you can still get it done because the point is that it's like it's not necessarily about the ice. It's just about how I wanted it to stay cold. Right. And so and I wanted it to be clean. And I just make sure of that by doing that and, it, you know, get a little flow workflow going. That's good for you. And if you can do that, then do that. But if you can't, that's totally like whatever. Oh, but uh, I was going off there a little bit. But um, but then the scalability of that is always like my, so like, you know, I see people, for example, now that are working maybe like more in a commercial way yeah. and they have these, you know, commercial ice makers that I'm assuming most of them are attached to some kind of like reverse osmosis system yeah. that's doing that. But, you know, if you're not working are you on cleaning that freeze, that ice machine though, because it's still, it can still get dirty even. And I heard that like some ice machines, you can't use true RO because it won't freeze it properly something about it that's what the new world water lady has to attach a little mineral filter but it's still clean ice like i would use that stuff you know i I don't so yeah but i mean oh yeah one one of the things i wanted to say before i forget is whenever i'm making that first wash and that all that ratio is right and it's flowing right now i go to the second wash i barely have to add any ice at all whenever i'm making my own i mean you know maybe i add a scoop but overall that ice is solid man like it's and so if you get a good workflow you could you could almost commercialize that you know you got two dudes with two stand-up freezers and you're making ice for two weeks before you start your main washes you know right. you could stack up a bunch of ice dude yeah you know but, but you know, take more hands-on but you can do it you do the long stand-up freezers to make your ice with ice cubes but then you store all that ice in in longer chest freezers or a little more horizontal 
Um, non-stand-up. Yeah, just creating more space. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. It you, just sucks. There's more freezers. You know, I agree. I like. I, I see where people are coming from. I'm a little dude that's making a little bit of hash. And so keep that in mind, too. <laughs> right. And I, you know, actually want to touch upon that as well. But, you know, since we're still kind of talking about the ice, you know, I think there's a couple of schools of thought. And when it comes to what ice is actually doing when you're washing, right? And so it's almost like take it for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, we throw ice and water in a bucket with material and it gets agitated and you make hash, right? But like, it's interesting to think about like, what is the ice, what role is it playing? What role do you see it playing? Like, is it that, as like some people say, the ice is making trichomes brittle and therefore kind of helping induce, like have them come off? Or is it more that they're just there to maintain a steady cold temperature to kind of maybe not to make the resin brittle, but to encourage the right type of environment for the trichomes to come off. Mm -hmm. Well, it does make it brittle. I think the resin is becomes a little bit more brittle and that's why it's able to, you know, crack off and, and float in the, or whatever, you know, be pushed by the water. And it's not the ice that, you know, if it was the ice, then we would all just be, turning cylindrical frozen cylinders without water in it, you know? Like if it was ice, we'd be making dry sift, ice <laughs> sift and, and without water, you know, there's a reason why that water is, it's real efficient, gets back kind of like to the efficiency of something that's super just simple. It's clean water, it's clean weed and, and a clean bag set. Those are the things you need to make some good hash. Maybe then obviously a cold environment, and a little bit more to, to it than that. But you know what I mean? Like, to make good coffee, you need good beans, good water, and uh, something to drink it out of. You know what I mean? Like, the, the best things in life are so simple. Like, margarita pizza. It's got, like, three things on it, but it's amazing. So, I posed this question to you, and you said you've had some experience with it. And that's kind of going back to this idea of, like, not using uh, ice or having the material like fresh material just put in really cold water yep. without the use of ice. Yep. And totally. you said that's something that you've kind of done in the past. And so I'm curious like to kind of talk about that experience and maybe some of the results of that. Even, you know, you'll hear people talk like Bubble Man and other folks will, I've heard other people too, talk, like talk about making hash in the snow or using snow instead of ice. And so, you know, when you're putting snow in a bunch of water, it's gonna melt. Oh, to talk about my experience with doing it. I just have done it like maybe two or three times on really small dry trim washes where I was just like, look, it's cold outside. I got cold water. Let's see if this works. And, and it definitely works. You can make hash with cold water for sure. You don't need the ice. I mean, obviously the ice is great. It's making it all better and making it colder. I think that, you know, when you're sticking that laser or thermometer down into the thing, not laser, hopefully, or, you know, steak knife thermometer down into the slurry if i'm not mistaken like i've done that a couple years ago i haven't done it recently but whenever it's perfect like you've put all the right amount of ice and stuff in there it's dropping below it's like 27 like 23 27 degrees or something in there fahrenheit i could be wrong but you know it's not 30 or 40 or whatever it's it's real real cold right and i'm sure you could do it with machine ice too not handmade so but just to 
just to give you some perspective, just because it, that ice definitely is needed, but the water will get the hash off there. Right. Even warm water, you know, you could spray it with warm water and catch some hash, but that hash is, that hash sucks and it's going to be greasing on your spoon and on your bags and all that. You're not going to get a bunch of hash. You'll get a little bit and it'll suck. But the point is, is that you, the water pushed it off there and then the water, and then the ice made it colder and it pushed it off there even more. Not the ice, but the water, just colder. That's how I feel about it. That's my, that's my opinion. Yeah. Or what I've seen other people say too. Yeah. I've seen you mention ice to water ratios and maybe how some people who make hash don't take that enough into consideration. Well, you know, the ones that are doing a real good job, there definitely are. There's no way to not. And once they start doing it a bunch, they all pick up on how that ratio is real important. And, uh, you know, you don't want too much ice. You don't want too much water. And But there's a, there's a company in between. You don't want too much material. There's a, there's a balance. And then uh, it, does and it all depends on what you're putting it in, like a 20-gallon plastic machine. Are you putting in a 35-gallon stainless steel thing like me? Are you putting in a, a 35-gallon trash like plat or you know, is it shaped differently? What is it shaped? How is it? I mean, you know, overall the ratio won't be different, but to you, you and your eyes, you're going to be like a little thrown off when you're putting something in something that's shaped a little differently, like a stainless steel drum that's a little bit wider than than those twenty gallon machines, for example. Right. Those bubble magic machines or whatever. Yeah. So um, you showed me your setup yesterday, which is really cool. By the way, thanks, <laughs> thanks for you. that. <laughs> uh, and you do your washing in something a little different than I've seen anybody else do it in, and it's like a it's, I guess, for beer, right? Like, technically? Oh, yeah, it's just a beer brew kettle. Okay. It's where you'd kind of, I believe you do the mash portion of it, but I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I've never made beer. My brother gave me a, a beer brew kit, and I have not used it yet, but I'll But that, it, it just has, like, that, it's just a big cylinder. Stainless steel drum. And it has a... Valve at the to, bottom. Yeah, the valve is yeah. kind of an important part. Totally. So that that's kind of cool. Like I said, I, I had never seen anybody use one of those but i mean there's companies selling them now like uh pure what is it damn it pure pressure pure pressure yeah i think they're selling them yeah they do the like they have like a brute list i think it's yeah. called their their things um but i mean you know this is very similar it's just you know i think their systems are kind of pricey and great i i don't know they they have some pump system that i'm not sure oh really i don't know if it's actually a good thing or not I'm not a, a hash maker. So I honestly I don't know. Somebody. I have heard from a different person that, that pure pressure was selling them. I yeah. haven't even seen their products. And okay. I haven't, but yeah. that I just thought it was cool that they were doing, they're finally like, okay, cool. Like kind of tapering this towards more cannabis and right. not the brew brew industry, you know, cause that's how I was, I was just typing in beer brew kettle on Google and trying to find the one that was like a nice price. And right. it was like around $300 for like a 35 gallon. Yeah. Maybe a little bit, maybe it's like a 38 or something like that, but I only put in, you know, you know, I don't want to overfill it. So anywhere from 25, probably 25 around 25. We'll just say that as an average, but it's probably something different, but I don't overfill it. That's the point. Okay, cool. So you can swirl it around and not get water everywhere. Obviously. Right. It's just the perfect size to fit one of those. Just one. I do one of those cube work bags for my extract and, uh, I might change it up and try a different work bag. I'm going to buy a new bag set this season. And I try to do that every season is just buy a new bag set. That's a, yeah, I talked about how it's a really neat tool. The bag set, it's so cool. It's, you can swirl it around, control that flow rate. There's the, like people, I don't know, like Whistler tech and all that stuff. It's cool. And making stuff on a large scale like that is awesome. But where is it? Why can't I see that? And like, is it really as good as 
some super high quality that was made in a five gallon bubble bag set. Like, let's figure that out and quit talking. Like, I want to stop talking about it. Let's figure it out. And then, yeah, there's something to that. Just want to bring it up. Yeah. And I mean, I think at Whistler, you know, again, it's something that we talked about yesterday. It's like, I was saying, I feel like at least for the time being, it's geared towards like a mass production. I've right? never seen it. So I don't want to talk shit. I, I bet. I don't know. They claim that. I don't know what they claim, but you know, probably make some damn good hash. But, but my point is, is that like, we're all making real good hash with 10, 20, five gallon bag sets and cleaning them and putting all that work, you know, like there's something, there's something to that bag set. That's just so efficient. I kind of don't see them going extinct for a while, maybe, but I don't know. Yeah. Again, back <laughs> to the idea of like simple can be really effective. I think that's definitely one of the cases with the bags. Yeah. And I don't know what will replace them because I mean, even if automation does come and I think it will eventually, it still has to be, it has to go through some kind of screen process. Mm -hmm. That's what's cool about it. It's like different people are going to sew their bags differently. Like the bubble bags are sewn differently than Mila's isolator bags. And, you know, Nick T flew all the way to Amsterdam to try to kick it with Mila and get, I'm not sure about that, but you know, I read about it and, I thought that was real cool that, you know, and then I think he's came out with a bag set for a little bit there. Yeah. And I'm sure that was sewn in a specific way that like he really maybe took what he learned from Mila and took what he learned from this and that and put it together his own way and, and got it out there. And it's cool that that can happen even in just the bag world. Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, obviously ice extract, I think is the big one that a lot of people use now, like you said, the bubble bags and then one that doesn't really get mentioned a lot that I think Frenchie uses is bolt bags. Yeah, man, they don't, that isn't mentioned a lot. Like I totally, I want to admit, I think I'm going to put my money towards bolt bags. I didn't want to say it, but that's what, I mean, I didn't, I just like, you know, I like ice tract. I like bubble bags. I've put my money towards both of them. Um, I've never had like a true set of Mila's bags where I worked with in a long time, but I had a friend and I worked with, I had a friend that did and um, we did a wash together with them. They were great. I just never really had them for myself, but my point is, is I put a lot of money towards bubble band, bubble bags and ice tract bought a lot of bags through them. And you know, they're really, they got, you know, they hooked me up sometimes. And, uh, but I would like to put my money towards bolt bags. I'm going to try them out. I think I'm going to try bolt bags this year. Maybe even go with those Frenchie full mesh style. Yeah. Um, and then kind of what they're they, popular or known for, I guess. Well, what I just realized is like, I called them and this real nice lady answered the phone and was helpful. And she was like, yeah, we're in Eureka. Why don't you just, and I was like, what? You're in Eureka? Because they were originally, or, you know, back, I don't know how many, a couple years ago or last year or whatever, we're in LA. So I hope I'm getting that right. I don't know where they were, but somewhere near LA. Or, um, so now they're local and that's yeah. real cool. Like Humboldt, I never put together bolts and bolt bags and never really put that together. I don't, I don't know why, but everybody else did. I didn't realize though. So it's cool they're local and I'd like to go and just support that. Yeah, no, that is cool. I mean, I've seen a few people working with them. Again, they're not like super popular. Yeah. Um, but the full mesh is interesting to me. You know, it seems like a way to maybe work water better. And I think I might do like a hybrid. Okay. I mean, I'm not sure yet. And I might even use a bubble bag in there somewhere or an ice track bag in the 150 if I can't get a 150 because I... For some reason, 
Nobody's doing that. I don't understand why people aren't making a 150 bag instead of a 160, but that's just me. And, uh, yeah, you know, like this whole thing about the bags is that bubble man, you know, he's the greatest example to bring up because he kind of, you know, he brought the 90 micron to us and the 73 and, you know, things like that. And really kind of figure out, you know, and other people with him helping figured out that there's that window that you can play with where heads are just a little bit better than the other window nearby. And so certain strains will fall, you know, in those different windows, but still be great quality hash. But you sometimes wish there was a 145 instead of a 150 or a 165. You know what I mean? Instead of whatever you're working with at the time, because even though those are standard, it's not like all of these gland heads are standardized for your back sets and they, they will never be, there's never going to be the same gland head. And so yes, they have been standardized and they follow the rules as to what plants we're running now. But imagine like if can it, like they genetically engineer it, start pumping off more oil and then you start catching gland heads in the 200, 500 microns. Like what's going to happen when that happens? You're going to have to start tapering your bag set. You know what I mean? That's just this most ridiculous example. But there will be gland heads that you, you wish you had a, a 125 down to a 60 or something like that. And yeah, for now, you're going to have to re-thread your bags and put a new micron set and get them all customized and all that. But Maybe one day it'll be a little, hopefully a little bit easier, but I think it's all that micron mesh ordering. Those companies don't want to just be putting together custom bags for people. And I totally understand. Like there's a reason why they're standardized like that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting concept of like there being no standard size for a gland head. And then that obviously affecting there no, not being like a standard size for a bag set. Right. And so, uh, this is something that you mentioned in a post recently about like how you could tailor specific bags for specific gardens and like what they're doing and including things like uh, how they're affected by microclimates and yeah, you know, soil health and life and stuff as well, you know, because all of, all of that obviously affects the resin and the genetics as well, obviously, Mm because, you know, those are, changing a lot yeah i mean i hope this example kind of makes sense but let's say you're running a sherbert and it lands in the 60 through 120 and the 120 isn't even that great the 90 is amazing the 70 is amazing but that's kind of where it all fell right and now you're running something like sour diesel or whatever you know like something like that where it just is landing it's surprising you how it's landing even sometimes more so in the 150 than the 120. Those kinds of things I like to set the bags up a little bit differently for. And then for the sure, you know, you're aware that's going to be catching those lower bags and it'd just be neat if you could kind of taper a bag set for that Sherbert and taper a bag set for that Sour D. And if you're running cultivars that you know how they work and it's just something you're going to keep around, then why not have a bag set specifically for that? strain a batch because basically they're gonna, it's going to be coming out like that I'm, I'm not doing this justice ex- explanation sorry bro do you think um, uh <laughs> so like what comes to mind is like what about the variables in the grow you know because even though maybe that cultivar so for example with the sherbet right you're saying 
it's mostly going to land in the 70s and 90s. So you kind of adjust what bags you're using before those to kind of clean it up as much as possible. Now, I'm sure there are sherberts that, that land. Uh, that's just, I was just trying to give an example. Okay. I shouldn't even said names, but but yeah, generally the sherbert will land a little lower, and then that 45 is darker, 38 or whatever you're running is darker in that lower and lighter hash in the 70 and 90. But what was your question? Sorry. No, I was just saying, like, how would even the same strain grown by the same person, just a different run of it, would that sometimes even change the size of those glands as well, though? Like outside of the genetic influence? Just the way that the different way that they grew it? Or like yeah, if they like, put, grew it in a different, like if they have a parcel that's big enough to where there's different microclimates on that parcel? Is that what you're saying? You could, yeah, I mean, that would be one example, for example, of, yeah. of that. Definitely, they're going to do different things in different locations for sure. There's something about the soil mediators, the microbes, and the way that that's all, you know, I, I'm pretty sure there's, like different microorganisms in different locations. And sometimes, you know, depending on how you're keeping that health around, you know, your garden's going to be different than whatever the next. So those gland, it'll be different for sure. The hash will be different. Like, and it'll be different depending on when you pulled it. Like sometimes we'll pull the banana OG at six weeks instead of eight weeks. And it'll still catch in the 90, 120, not as much in the 150. Then we pull it two weeks or one week later, even or just a few days later, sometimes, or it's just a part of the different part of the bed that somehow, for some reason, got more 150 in it than the other. But well, you'll land more 150 than the 120 sometimes. Um, so yeah, I think that it has to do with the mostly the the you know the environment that it's growing in. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so in that case, it would be you know, and again, it's just curiosity but like you'd almost have to have like a standard set for each of the sets of microclimates and how those trichomes respond almost you know like maybe you know you just use a different filter bag above above the 120 and 190 than you would for the for the banana og or right. the srd that's landed up there right and so you know you'd kind of customize it how you how you want it and how it worked for you and then yeah i mean yeah that would be a custom tailored bag for sure for your yeah uh, like i want that People do that, like Frenchie does that. He's got, a, I think, a custom bag set. But yeah. Do you feel like you've kind of influenced some of the, I know you mentioned the word gardeners or farmers, as to when they're pulling their plants based on you working the resin? That's happened before. I mean, I can think of the banana OG really is that that was the main one. And we just did that to experiment. And because it's one of those strains that, it just seems like it's mature even early on. There's like it starts forming gland heads early on in the flowering, super early. Yeah, so that's one of the strains I, I would say like you're kind of known for, right? Like the banana OG is one that definitely comes to mind. It's our favorite. Like we we yeah, we love it. Yeah, <laughs> and we that's that's really what we've been trying a lot of since yesterday. And oh, I mean, right. I, I love that banana OG. And like I said, anything I ever try from you is is really good. I mean, it's super flavorful. Uh, you were showing me some stuff that was like two years old and it was like your full spec. And then you showed me stuff that was like a year old that was like, I think the 90 and then mm -hmm. maybe even some 120. Mm -hmm. And it just all, you know, still has a, a great aroma to it. And then obviously it packs a nice effect as well. Thanks, man. I love hearing people, comp the compliments. It's awesome. So yeah, I'm 
so lucky to be able to, to, to do it, you know, right place, right time and just luck and so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. And I mean, it's funny that you brought up the sour diesel because when I first really started like getting into hash and like I told you yesterday, I smoked hash back like in the early 2000s in Amsterdam when I went, but here it just wasn't something that was like popular, especially in a place like Texas, right? It's like you're lucky to get decent bud. <laughs> so you like that kind of sour diesel that gets you like super paranoid heart beating high? I mean, I, I'm a <laughs> sativa fan in okay, general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I, I think I maybe like deal with that aspect better or like it's not part of the reaction that I typically have right. with those types of cultivars. But, you know, it was like the one of the big things, right? At yeah. that time, like sour diesel seemed to be like one of the first real strains that was like big for hash making. And it, I almost like want to equate it to like what GMO is now. It really is like really neat that people would take that sour all the way, the diesel all the way. And then, you know, there was folks that weren't and still making hash out of it and still being able to sell it, you know, like it still yields. I don't know. I just think that's funny. And it, and it really is really neat that you can take it all the way. And the, I don't know. I always love the sour diesel. People talk shit, but I love that shit. Well, and I think that seems to happen. Like, it's just like stuff that was like popular yeah. a few I years mean, it's, later. It's, people it's, are like kind of down on it, but it's the thing to it do. had its place, you know, and it kind of like, I think started something with water hash that maybe out, outside of something like that, genetics like that coming along, I don't know if it would have like come this far this fast in a way. Yeah. And again, I don't mean to like kind of harp on this point, but just because I've gone through the account and it's interesting to me, you know, so that sour diesel was popular, I would say probably around like 2013 to like 2016 or so. But before the sour diesel, what were some of the things that you were working with that like was producing quality, you know, hash or, or milk? anything that's like that too, like headband or Kim. I don't know if it's from Kim dog. That's what people say. Um, but things like that were always my favorite. Like even when I just smoked weed, I mean, just smoked weed. <laughs> I'm just above all of you. Non-weed smoke. But, uh, I always would like, you know, do that bottom of the bag tech that Cuban talks about where you just like, you lift up the bag and you look at it and it's like, are those glandular trichomes right in there? Cause if they're not, then like, I'm probably not going to want to smoke it as much as something that would. And so all those chems and sour diesels and stuff like that, always that bag test was, was yeah, it, it was like, winning on the bag test all the time. Right. It, even before I made hash, you know, I knew, I knew that that there was something about that resin for sure. The real you know, you can really see those capitate, the glandular heads real, real good. Yeah. I mean, they just tend to fall off and that's why you see them. I think at the bottom of the background, it's just a good indicator of like, well, yeah, the resin or, you know, at that point, I guess almost like the keef, it's like a real keefy plant, right? It drops a lot of resin. And so, you know, if it's doing it in the bag, it likely would do it well in like cold, in a cold environment as well. Right. Have you heard that keef is really the term means something completely different in Europe? No. I, well, I think I have, but I'm, I'm happy to. I, I refer to keef as what you find in the dry sift green too. Like, I don't, I don't, it's just like maybe like a crude, loose trichome preparation. Right. 
would be Keith, but apparently Frenchie says that it's, um, you know, other people say it too, not just Frenchie, but um, it's smoked out of some specific pipe and it's some specific, it's something else. I don't think it's right to what we refer or like how we refer. Or maybe it's like a slurry of tobacco or, you know, mixture of tobacco and something else. Right. But that's what, yeah, I forget it. Then the pipe is some certain name to the pipe, um, but that's what Keith is. Yeah, we refer to it in Western culture. In a different way, yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's part of like why I enjoy these conversations and like why I enjoy talking to people who do this a lot, right? And like have so much more experience than I do, for example. I have no experience. And so it's interesting to see, like you said earlier, the terminology, right? Like trying to find some kind of baseline to where we can all agree or like have a common understanding of like what words mean or you know like you said keep to us maybe mean something very different than it means to somebody like Frenchie right right right, right. Um, yeah I just yeah I just want it yeah I thought that was yeah good to talk about too but you it's funny because we were talking about so I was mentioning some of the strains that I saw early in your feed like three kings yeah the girl scout cookie the OG the OG Kush shout out Frumble I think that he was Frumble here in Humboldt County he was pumping off that indoor, real good, fresh indoor resin that I was like, wow, okay, indoor resin. It's a thing. Real good. Does the job. So real <laughs> was some of this first stuff that you were washing was all indoor? That was, yeah, most of it was indoor, either trim or smalls or just stuff they didn't want to trim up. You know, stuff like that was what I was running. And then slowly went to, or just, you know, I was reading on like nicotine whatever kind of his web, I think it was the central extracts and he had all these photos and it was all fresh frozen. You know, he's the one that came out with solventless. Like the, like that's, I'm pretty sure he like, I think he, yeah. Yeah. And then like high times maybe kind of made it famous. I don't know, but we all refer to solventless, but that's Nick T. And uh, so I was like seeing this solventless fresh frozen is what he was referring to. I was like, wow, okay, let's try this. And so I drove all the way out to Willow Creek and um, one of the badass gardeners out there was growing some red diesel and it just wasn't shaping up to be what he wanted to pound out at the time. Okay. Like put it into flour and trim it. It was larvae and the buds just weren't filling in how they normally did, I guess. And it was just a whole field full of, a small field full of red diesel plants. And so I was like, yeah, man, let's do this. And so it was the first time I ever prepped the fresh frozen that was like maybe 2013 14 okay i don't know honestly but one of those years and then it's real funny because i just put it in a bag and drove it an hour home with no freezer right (laughs) and then i washed it and and did fine you know because it was one of those super hydrophobic planets and you know i'm sure a lot of turp loss and all that but it worked so just to clarify (laughs) for maybe some people that aren't like familiar with but when you refer to them being hydrophobic, what do you mean by that? So th- hydrophilic means that it'll basically pull in water. It's attracted to water. And then the hydrophobic would be the opposite. So kind of like... Repels water? Yeah, like lizard skin or reptiles, like snake skin. You know, like if you spray water on a reptile like that, the water just comes right off. That's a hydrophobic thing. And then, yeah. So, um, when it so comes the glandular- to like resin glands... And you're trying to make water hash. That's obviously a 
good characteristic to have. Yeah. Hopefully they're not all hydrophilic, you know, because then they were, you know, that's probably what the water soluble, it would be water soluble at that point. And a lot of those terps are, I think, you know, just going right down the drain. Right. Yeah. It's still interesting because like, especially with high quality hash like yours, when you smell it, it still smells really strong and like very similar to like what it would have been on a cured flower almost, but yet you're still losing a good amount of terpenes in that. And then also in, in your case, maybe with some, with the microplaning, right. But it still has an amazing terpene profile after yeah. losing all that, Yeah, yeah. you know, so that it's kind of interesting how almost resilient some of the some of these hydrocarbons can be, which I guess is what terpenes are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I knew more. Like I was like, just we were talking about it earlier, but I couldn't find this one paper. It's from the '80s, scientific paper that I just really liked the language that they were using and how they wrote it and how they concluded. And it's something like the structure, complex, and uh, composition of the glandular trichome from cannabis sativa and. I can't find it anymore. Like they took down the article or put it somewhere else or put it somewhere where I have to pay for it to get it, but, or I have to email and get it, but I can't find it. I wish I could, because I like, I just like reading the conclusion of it where it's like trichomes are dynamic. They're constantly changing no matter what. There's no, nothing that you can do. I mean, you know, that freeze dried product or that sieve product or the dried product is just, it's going to be, you know, it's changing. Everything about this is changing. You know, whenever you dry a plant and smoke it, that nug was different than it was when it's fresh. No one's talking about that. You know, like there's a, there's something different going on, obviously that but we wish that we could capture all those turps, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like those solvent, that butane and other solvents that that's how a chemist would make hash. You know, that would, that's, you're getting That's the turps always win on that. Just to be honest with you, like the, you know, you open a jar of the sauce, BHO sauce has more turps. And, you know, hash is raw and like a hole still, it hasn't, you know, you're only focused on the diameter of the pore sizes and lifted it up out of water. You haven't basically broken it down into a slurry of different compounds that are now interacting with themselves, you know, ideally, hopefully that's what you're doing with the hash. And so that now it's just in a powdered loose resin, just almost like how it was on the plant. That's the goal. But, you know, I dry it, I shred a lot of those gland heads and I'll admit to that. So, yeah. And on that note, I know you mentioned earlier one of your first experiences buying hash and mold. Yeah. You know, can you talk about that experience? And then, yeah. like, one of the local dispensaries, they're actually still going um, under 60, Prop 64. I don't want to name it, but it doesn't matter. They didn't know they were selling moldy hash, so it doesn't matter anyway. But yeah, I bought some hash and the next day I go to smoke it and I open the jar and the whole thing is full of mold, like more mold than hash. And I was just like, was super freaked out and realized, oh my gosh, you know, like this whole drying it concept is a real, is needed and keeping it cold. And, you know, maybe the water's even getting inside that gland head. I'd never took that into consideration. So I'm going to shred these things up. <laughs> And then dab it. I'm like, we'll enjoy it when we can, you know? And if the turps are really going away like that, you know, we don't want to smoke it. That's cool. Right. It's just how I'm making it in small batches and I like it and got a good workflow. And, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I don't know, you know, we were laughing earlier about how many people like 
still are looking to uh, air dry hash, right? But for people that maybe are like want to experiment or doing it on a small scale, or somebody who dries air hash A, which is not many people outside of uh, you, I think Cam Camden from Pool Extracts is the only other guy. Why would you? You know, like <laughs> right? I get it. But somebody who does it and does it still currently and has been doing it so long and does it well, can you give people, I guess, some tips onto how to properly dry hash so, you know, mold does not become an issue like it was for you then? Yeah. I don't have experience with the freeze dryer, but I know that there are basics to this drying. And, you know, there's fundamentals that you need to pay attention to. And that's the cold. And that's like dry, not too dry though. It'd be nice if there was a comfy in between and or mainly a comfy in between on temperature where you're not going too cold, not going too hot. And there's there's something about that. Like there's certain, you know, certain specific temperatures work well with other strains, whereas something like the Z the Skittles or something, you're gonna have to crank that down into the forties. Whereas a lot of the stuff I I work with is just in fifty fluctuating from fifty to fifty-four degrees maximum. Um, but it's chilly in there, you know? Yeah. I, and the microplaning you do so, in that same environment? Yeah, so whenever I do that, I, I my my main goal is to just spread it out as evenly as I can and leave, you know, not make any chunks in there. You don't want there to be chunks. And just getting, you know, try. your goal is to get it real thin and spread out over and over and over again with the baking racks is how I do it. But you can do it on any wide surface with, you know, I use parchment, put the parchment down and then I just use graters. It's nice to use multiple graters. And that's where like Frenchie will always bring up these microplanes. These microplaners always have a, a, a <laughs> you know, a huge garbage full of microplanes. Well, it's like, yeah, that's the, that's almost the truth, you know, because, you know, I do use them over and over again and try to clean them as much as possible, but they get dull. And so whoever would like to figure out that microplaning on a commercial level where you don't have to go through so many microplanes, that'd be awesome. I hope people are working on that right now. <laughs> yeah, it's not something that I had really thought about, but now that you mentioned it, yeah, I've seen people like go through or like post something before when microplaning yeah. was bigger, it's like just boxes of like old microplanes. Yeah, right? I think there's a place for everything, you know, like there's a freeze dryer, there's a place for the freeze dry hash and there's a place for the microplane hash. And and that's the fun of this whole thing is like people have different ways of doing things. This is so cool. There's a craft to this. For sure. And so, yeah. So that leads me to ask you about something that's kind of a topic that you hear so much about in different ways, which is this term caking, mm. right? Also, I wanted to finish on how there's never a perfect way to dry hash. Okay. Like you'll, you'll be searching for it and the freeze dryer is almost there, right? But it's like coffee. Sorry, bringing it up again, guys. But when you grind coffee beans, that the particulate of the coffee beans has to be a, a nice size. The size range can't be too much. So, like, you, you, in other words, you want that those coffee beans when they're ground to be a really uh, the same size. Whenever they're ground up into small little pieces, those pieces need to be accurate and the same size so that you can extract the coffee properly and not over or under extract depending on the size of that particulate. So 
How was I relating that? Where are we going? I'm, I'm, the caking? Yeah. No, no. Before that, though. Oh, there's the, no true way oh, to yeah, perfectly grind a coffee it. bean. There's yes. no way to perfectly grind a coffee bean, just like there's no way to perfectly dry a glandular trichome. So you still think that there's some room for improvement? There's room for improvement with it all. Yeah, for sure. Totally. And or, 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 you know, or it's never going to be perfect. And we're all just searching for it to that rose at the end of the thing. But really, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. So people that, for <laughs> example, feel like freeze dryers have solved the issue of drying resin. You would say to that, that there's. I don't think it's perfect. It's amazing hash. But I don't know. I think there's still room. There's still like room for that microplane hash, too. And that's you hash. And uh, I've heard other, you know, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and people like that look of that old sieved caviar look. You know, there's a place for all of this stuff. I agree. Yeah. So, and, it, and it's interesting to try the differences and then be like, wait, what? Like, whatever, Cuban's vacuum tech, like, is be- like, what? Okay, this is right, right on. And then the freeze dryers, like, I remember when that shocked the hell out of me because I just wanted to poo-poo it, you know, but... That shit shocked the hell out of me when I went to the Emerald Cup and people were just cranking out the freeze-dried hash and it was amazing. So don't get me wrong, like it's amazing, but there's always room for improvement, I think, in any world, in any craft industry or like this. And the coffee bean is a great example because the particulate size and how you can't grind the burr grinder and how they're always trying to update the grinder. Well, they're going to be updating the micro, you know, maybe the, maybe the people have found their tech with the freeze-dryer, but... I don't know. I think there's always room to be surprised, even whenever you've, you think you've perfected something. Yeah. Yeah. And two guys that you mentioned to me that you thought use a freeze dryer well are Ati and Wuxaw Swinery. Yeah, totally. When uh-huh. I saw Ati's hash and then the, whoever was doing the Emerald Cup extracts that year. Which I, I think was Ati, but okay. we're, yeah, we're not really clear. I think it might might have been multiple folks. I'm not sure. I'm sure. Okay. But um, so that that whole it was just exploding with freeze dried hash. All of a sudden, everybody was like, "Wow! Like this is this is happening!" Right? <laughs> yeah, it was a big it's a big change and like yeah, man. You know how how does drying relate to this idea of caking though? Like because the way that I've kind of understood it from just like social media is like if a resin isn't properly dried. Mm-hmm it's going to quote unquote cake Mm -hmm. faster. Mm -hmm. First of all, what does caking mean to you? And like, how does it relate to drying? So how does it relate to drying? Let's wait on that one. So I wish I had more to say on this. Like, I, I honestly don't know much about it, but I think that, so like what I can say is that you can try to dry some hash. (laughs) My little dog is funny. I'm going to put him in his bed. Sorry. Yeah. Boy, um, so things like, like, I don't know if purple punch is the great example, but something like that flavor profile will tend to tend to cake up, and then you'll have some hash that you know caked up because there was some moisture in it, and you'll know you'll see some hash that you know caked up maybe because of the terps. So it's something to do with the moisture in the terps or the terps. Or the moisture bite, you know, it's something. Something's going on in there. Something make it making those those terpenes and compounds in there react a little differently. 
I can only go off on like a bro science. I don't have, there's, this is pseudo, there's no science. I have no. Right. right. <laughs> and like I said, and like the, I say, it's like, we don't have the science behind talk, it. People talk about how that's a crystalline structure and they talk about how the word nucleation it gets in there, gets thrown around in there. Maybe that's nucleation. Sterin, S-T-E-A-R-I-N, sterin. That's like essentially plant wax. Um, if you Google sterin, you'll see it's just a white, it looks like what crystallite white hat, caked, ash, caked hash looks like. You know, if you were to extract that white wax or whatever, the caked out part, that's what sterin, almost what sterin is. It's in all kinds of other plants too, you know? Right. Is it a bad thing? Like, so that let's might, take the Skittles, for example, right? Like you said that might just, it wouldn't have to do necessarily with the moisture. It has to do more with that particular type of resin. Yeah, it can happen. It can do with the terpenes and right. stuff. You know, those are all like vibrating at certain frequencies. I don't, I don't know this stuff, but right. cer- certain people do. And like the gas chrom- chromatography guys right. and they're all, I don't, I'm yeah. But, uh, yeah, something's happening where those terps are like wrapping up in that wax, like almost like you threw a sweater in a washing machine. Okay. And it's just all over it, you know, and that's where you see those waves in the rosin. So I don't know what's going on in there. But is it? But so it's terps. It's something about the, the phenols or maybe, maybe phenol. I don't know, man. I honestly don't know. I wish I did. It, it seems like it's like not a good thing. Right? Like when people... Well, you know, legends, like the legends of hash years ago, I'd hear stories about how, you know, you try to enter some caked up hash, you're you're not going to enter. You're, or, you know, people aren't going to, people are not going to dig your hash as much so you won't win or whatever. I always heard, I heard that for a long time. And that's just an example. You know, there's a whole series of folks that experienced negative experiences whenever they would smoke the caked versus the fresh non-caked you know there's a difference and maybe a little harsher on the cake sometimes not maybe not maybe that's why it's confusing to all of us you know right so yeah i, I, don't, I mean know. it's it's interesting man I, I i did like you know back in the day i would you know cake out the hash and, and it was probably because there was water in it and or the terps in the water and whatever is happening i don't know but it was caking and i'd smoke that and be like whoa that was a little harsher than it, than that like pressed out piece of shatter ice wax you know right so so yeah man i mean there's uh, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't really talked about like your and i'm hesitant to call it a brand okay um, yeah but your donuts <laughs> yeah which is kind of what you're known for i mean you know just gotta put a donut. It's like, just a donut. Yeah, it's just a donut. And <laughs> yeah. the the donuts, it's kind of a funny thing. And we've been talking a lot about that since yesterday. But it's you know, one thing I gather or get from you is like you don't, you're not really big on, on like branding, right? And it's not I about am. the the brand yeah. of the donut, but right. it's more about the quality that's in the donut. Yeah, I mean that was originally like I was like, look what. Why does it matter about the graphic on, even though at the time I was like, Hey man, like my friend Adam would just be like bored and drawing all kinds of shit on pieces of trash. Like that come off bottles or like stickers, random pieces of paper, just drawing. So he would draw like custom labels and, uh, you know, and I'd be like, well, you know, why do we even need, let's just sell it. Just put a white sticker on there and put 90 micron, you know, like it doesn't need to, and you don't need to know who made it because what? 
They don't care about me anyway. Like, that, like that's what I figured out on Instagram really quickly is people don't care about me. They care about my real good hash. So I'll post really pretty pictures of hash. People like that. So that's what I just continued doing and kind of like curated that content towards just hash. And I've since kind of left like my personal and like, you know, don't post so much pictures of my face and stuff, but it's just the kind of the way that it's all gone. But yeah, I don't know. I went off a tangent, totally forgot what you even asked me. No, no, no. We were just talking about the donuts. <laughs> okay, yeah. the donuts. So like another thing that kind of made me think of like putting donuts on there was the TI nail. Back in the day, the, remember the TI nails? Uh, sur- um, shoot, I don't for Whatever. The TI nails, it was a donut. It was a shape of a donut. And whenever you had really high quality hatch that vaporized real cleanly, full melt, clear dome, whatever you want to call it, ice wax it would melt down and connect that ring of that donut. And I was just like, wow, that's great. That's cool. I'm going to, yeah, donuts are cool. And then at one point in 2015, I was at a festival called All Good Festival. Or no, sorry, Gathering the Vibes. All Good Festival is the first time I smoked out that bubble ash where I was like, what, bubble ash? But um, 2015, years later, I'm working side operations. And so I have a walkie-talkie on me and all my team has a walkie-talkie on them too. And so we're all talking to each other when we need to. But randomly the good friend big country would spout off like random words like bacon like throughout the day you know we're working our ass off and all of a sudden big country would come on the microphone saying bacon randomly throughout the day and so i thought that was funny and then sometimes he'd say donut and i thought that was funny too and uh you know and then i think it was like six months to a year later i was back here in humble that was in connecticut and i was back here in at home in humble and my friend adam was doodling away and I was like, hey, man, will you draw a donut? <laughs> and then I took a picture of the donut and then I just made 400 stickers and, and then it just went, went from there. But really it was, it was like, you know, I don't know if I even want to start a brand. Like I don't have any business experience, so I don't have any true experience like all other folks that, you know, have won awards with their brand and, you know, they're like, you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't, I just, just put a donut on it and maybe they'll know it was me. That's cool with me. Right. Yeah. It wasn't, like you said, it wasn't about you. It was really more about the resin. Totally. (laughs) And that's why I find funny, like at the top of your profile, it says something along the lines of like, I make hash sometime. (laughs) Right. So it's not like something that you're doing necessarily like on a production level. Yeah. No, there's a pattern to it for sure. Like, you know, I'm in Northern California, so I'm mostly, I really love the depths and I love depth season and, that resin and a lot of other people do too. Like I'm sure Brandon Thurgen, he loves that solar, the radiation, like on that California depth style force flowered plants. And you know, they're a little bit smaller and it's almost like indoor resin. It's probably a little bit more contaminant in there than the indoor resin is, but right. Or, but overall it's just like, it's so good. And so there's a pattern to that. And that, that would be the pattern that I'm making hash at too. And, you know, I was like a full, I was like basically a full-time student um, in a college town. And so I never had time to start off a brand and really get it going. I was just doing it mostly on the side. And then, you know, at night, whenever I could, like, way before the donut, I was like, we got to do this at night on the porch because there's no way we're doing it in the daytime because I had horrible experiences with that, you know, and the heat. So, but yeah going off there again yeah that was one of the kind of funny things that um you told me about that you know i was obviously unaware of is like before you had a controlled environment you would work outside at night 
when it was cold. Yeah, it just makes total sense. Totally. You know? and yeah. I think that's just, obviously, it's going to be like, it's such a foreign concept Yeah. for most people. Also, I read that on Rolled Up, like one of those people that, that chimes into that Rise post was like, well, it was just work at night, or anything I think maybe Matt chimed into. It's like, you know, it really has to do with the cold temps. And, you know, Nick at the time knew that too. And I was, I was looking at that website. And just kind of putting it all together and then physically doing it myself and realizing, okay, yeah, this makes a little sense. And, you know, it's obvious now that I talk about it to me, but yeah, at the time it wasn't obvious. It was like, why the hell does this hash suck? And why does this hash not suck? And what the hell is going on here? To one of the best, the best hash that I ever saw for the first time, it was properly dried in a cold room, was full flavor extracts. I forgot to tell, I wanted to talk about that. It's cool. It was the white one of the strains of the white, I think it was a blend of different stuff he had in his garden. Okay. Sorry about my dog. He's just walking around all over the place. Oh, no, he's fine. Just... You want to jump up on the couch, bud? Hey. Yeah. Boy. Um, but yeah, full flavor. I walked into CCA and I was going to go down there to buy some Shatter Bros. <laughs> and uh, I was like, whoa, whoa, what? And he had a mason jar, just a bright white hash. And it literally was the white, the strain with a blend of other stuff, you know, Kim kind of Kim style f- flavor profile to it. Okay. And God damn, I was just like, dude, you're doing this in a cold room, right? And you're, you're great. Are you grading this in a cold room? He was like, yeah, man, definitely. It's like, all right. Everything I've been reading online and everything that I just did at my house a few days ago, I just, I just need to work with a little bit better material. Maybe it'll come out like that. And then like ever since then, it was just like, you know, it's totally obvious that you need to keep it cold and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think Full Flavor has definitely been around for a while. Yeah, dude, one um, of the OGs. And he's still putting out fire from what I can tell. But yeah, that that was an interesting shift from like going from the non-controlled to the in- controlled environment, which, you know, we could talk about that all day because I think that's definitely changed the game. But, right. you know. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, even with a freeze dryer, you should be working in a cold room. You're taking that the you know the bat the spoons and getting that hash in that freeze dryer. Hopefully that's in a cold space, right? So that you're washing cold too, right? And so there's yeah, no the, flux in temperature taking it yeah, out. Yeah, I think a lot of folks think like, oh, I'll just buy this freeze dryer and then I don't have to cool down a room. But honestly, you're you might have a hard time if you're not if you're just relying on just your freeze dryer. You know, you might need you might need that. You know, I could be wrong, but right. I'm pretty sure. And then well, then you'd have to be washing at night. And then getting it right in that freezer, you know, <laughs> so, to go back. So, like, there's a reason why that, that room is cold for sure. Yeah. You've mentioned Roll It Up a few times. Maybe some people that are a little bit younger might not know what that was. That was basically just, like, a forum yeah, site. Yeah, one of those forums where anybody could go and post. Right. And, I, and Matt Rise, that's where I first saw that stuff. And, yeah, he put and out that tutorial. I've read through that whole rolled up feed and, you know, everybody's comments on it and all that shit, you know? Yeah, it's funny and interesting to see and go through that. Totally. Um, I have but, friends on the East Coast that read it right. and then flew here and were like, didn't, hadn't even ever seen it and had, but had read that and right. were like tripping out on how I was making it, you know? And yeah. it's just so super funny. Like, that is funny. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we don't have to get into it a lot, but just because of the kind of geographical proximity that you had to Matt Rice and the years that kind of you were here were some of the years I feel like he was kind of first making his ice wax up here. 
Um, I, I think honestly, I was like right at kind of, I was approaching the end of what he, what they were cranking out. Okay. And I, th- I think that, you know, maybe that, that might tie into like the whole idea I had about the first, second wave, first wave, second wave and third wave of the cannabis or the hash, you know, because yeah. kind of like the coffee, if you're in the coffee world industry, like people will talk about, you know, certain folks in the industry will talk about the first wave, second wave and third wave and how that all changed. But I may or may not been in that, the end of that second wave of like, you know, it was the wild west. Like that was, I don't know if it'll ever be like that again, you know? Oh, yeah. Did I answer that? I don't know. I didn't answer that at all. <laughs> what, is your, what is your question? No, but there wasn't really a question. It was okay, more okay. like, yeah, be, just being around the area with kind of the guy who was, it seemed like, pushing what, yeah. you know, hash has become in this area. Oh, yeah. And I know there's obviously other people that were doing it as well. Like you said, Brandon from 3rd Gen, and yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of other people. But he was Matt, like, I feel, was like kind of like the guy who became almost like a public figure and it has a lot probably to do with that tutorial. Right. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, I think it did start there and then maybe the bits and the few YouTube videos that he did that all kind of played in there. Right. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, you're introducing a concept that, yeah, is obvious, but it's also cool that he shared that too, you know, like uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so back to this concept of waves, right? So the first wave you were telling me earlier in reference to coffee, just to kind of sum it up, right? The first wave are like the Folgers, right? Yeah, first wave is like Folgers or Nestle or like Maxwell House. Right. Like and big bulk cans of coffee in the store, in the supermarket or whatever. Yeah, and um, that's, you know, that's I was telling you earlier laughing yesterday because that's what my parents drank and probably what the majority of It took coffee drank. to every home in the USA, right. you know, or whatever. And, uh, and then also brought us vacuum packaging, the catchy slogans like, the best part of, of waking up, you know, things like that. And it just introduced, you know, no, and it was known for being, the coffee was known for being bitter and, and bland and, and weak and not, you know, stringent, you know, and like, and then the second wave came and that, and that's, that was second wave began directly because of the, that lack of quality from folders and all that stuff, you know, and things like Pete's and Starbucks started to come up. And uh, they came up with different ways to distribute like fresher and higher quality product. And then that's when popularized terms like espresso and lattes and baristas all came into the, you know, started to become more popularized. And the consumers, they educated their consumers more on like where the beans came from, the origins of those being the fruit, the, the coffee fruit and how exactly to roast it. Um, was that was being shared all of a sudden. And, you know, that that was like... When I think that education also, like, creates... Gives okay. people, like, options, right? Yes. Or gives the people more of an informed decision-making right. uh, process. And, and that's and that, kind of what I find interesting you're saying about it equating to hash. Yeah, and that see. leads to the third wave, where it's like, where the second wave brands made it, you know to the supermarkets and into retail shelves, you know, those brands like Intelligentsia and Vivace and, and Stumptown and stuff like that. If people know about coffee, we'll know about them. And, you know, they made it into the market, you know, and like, you know, they, they brought their unique retail experience to the table, the place and the proprietors became a bigger part of the story. And like some would say that more important than the brew itself, you know, and then a, a movement, it was a movement akin to the craft brew movement. 
that would be the third wave. And you're in, what you're doing is introducing a higher quality coffee to a wider audience. And that's the third wave. And, you know, like I would like to hear other hash makers and, you know, senior hash podcast, like talk about like what wave do they think we're in? Are we in that first, second or third wave? Like, let's talk, let's talk about it, guys. I think it'll, it'll bring up other topics too. You know, maybe they'll, they'll have other things to say about it. Cause I don't, I don't know what wave we're in, but I was just trying to say there, you know, maybe I was catching that second wave. Right. Or, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's interesting. And it's interesting to think There's, about the industry or like specifically hash kind of in that sense, you know, and yeah. I, you know, Kiki or your girlfriend and I were talking a little bit about like, well, what prevents there from being a fourth wave and like right. a fifth wave. And Maybe that's where you figure out how to perfectly grind those coffee beans into the perfect particulate size. Maybe that's where the freeze dryer steps up its game just a little bit more, maybe. But then again, I've seen perfect freeze dried hash and, you know, what, what exactly is perfect. So, but like, you know, maybe that's, that's a part of the fourth wave. Who knows? Yeah. No. Or what if the fourth wave is genetically engineered plants that keep in mind natural selection so that they're not, what's that word? Advantageous. I think that that's the word genetically, like where they won't go and take down, you know, other genetics and take over not basically evolve into the if you can genetically engineer a product a plant that's not going to affect your neighbor or something or like make it so that i don't even know what but you could genetically engineer a plant to produce more oil content and if that was a thing and that was a thing everybody was like kind of stoked on instead of hating on which you know the gmo that's like a double-edged sword you know because genetically modified could mean selective breeding but genetically engineering that's not selective breeding. That's not like physically we're taking the, you know, what we're doing like with tulips and cannabis and apples and stuff that's selective breeding, but in a lab where you're really changing that genome. So somehow I don't know how to even talk about it. Like, but that's a double-edged sword because you could be affecting your, the farmer next door and all that, you know, there's arguments against and for it. But my point is that what if you did produce plants that were pumping off more resin and all of a sudden you're catching glandular trichomes cleanly in the 200 and 500 micron bag and you had to develop a new way to clean those heads. And it was just a bunch of yield in the 500 micron all of a sudden and you can't just throw it away, you know? Like who cares about 120 and 90 at that point? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. It's funny to think about it that way. So maybe that's the fourth wave or like the fourth wave might be like plant proprietary plants right or something yeah where you can't grow other people's stuff yeah i yeah, that's a tough one I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that it's happening in other places other in you know ma- the mango men in florida you guys should check that out for sure the mango men in florida they're awesome they're killing it like all these different cultivars of mangoes some taste like pineapples some taste like like a pina colada and it's a mango and it's mouth-watering and it's because they've dry farmed it they didn't water it and apparently mangoes thrive off of neglect so you can't you know it doesn't like a bunch of nitrogen in florida the ground the water table is way low right there right underneath your feet basically in sand sand so like you don't need once those plants tap in that's that old bohemian i believe the term is bohemian those or no i'm completely wrong I i forget the indigenous floridian folks would grow this traditional way and the mango men grow that same traditional way and the mangoes just melt in your mouth because they didn't pour a bunch of water all over them and water down that fructose or whatever that that taste isn't getting all flushed out 
and that mango melts in your mouth. And it's not all fleshy like the supermarket mangoes that get stuck in your teeth. You know, and it can be like that for bananas too. Bananas, there's different cultivars where it's just melting in your mouth and it doesn't taste anything like the supermarket mango or the banana and you'll never want to eat a supermarket banana again, you know? like. And so, yeah, I don't know how that ties into the fourth wave, but it, we went there. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I, you know, and it, about the mangoes, you know, again, I don't know exactly what cultivars are growing, but I know they call thing. some starburst. Really? Like, you know, it's just like, cause I know like for example, in India, I think they have an insane amount of like variety of mangoes as to where in at least North America, I think it's been reduced to, you know, the typical ones, like you said, that you see in the grocery store. Totally. Yeah. I've always wanted to go to Costa Rica. I follow, the, or I, I subscribe to this YouTube account, green dreams. Uh-huh. And it's a permaculture design, a permaculture landscaper in Florida named Pete and he's a badass and highly recommend like either following his Instagram and story it's just really neat you get to see all this exotic fruit and all this fruit you've never tried before you know and then he goes on these trips to Costa Rica during those fruit festivals that they have in Costa Rica and like all this exotic fruit straw fruit like all this different stuff all these different kinds of passion fruit and things you are just dreaming about you know yeah. and I, I want to go there so bad and try the different uh, you know Taste, really cool taste fruit I've never tasted before. Yeah, for sure. Like there's a passion fruit. I think that's the fruit that when you break it open, it looks like a bunch of jewels. And you take a spoon, you can spoon out those like jewels, basically. And uh, there's one that's like yellowish white. They call it the white pomegranate, I think. And it's more sour and tart than the sweeter purple one. And it's just stuff like that, man. I want to go out there and experience that. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. I... Fruit festival, uh, Costa Rica. What time of the month? It's like... It's like June, July-ish is the badass time to go down in those areas and try the tropical fruits. Yeah. Speaking of flavors, and I know, you know, we've been hanging out quite a while, so I'll start kind of winding this down. But, you know, one of the things that I've always found kind of unique about your hash making is your blends. Thank right? You. And so, like I told you yesterday, one of the first, I think the first thing I ever got from you was the black banana greaser. Okay, yeah. And we talked a little bit about that last night but you know you tend to make lots of kind of blends with the resin right so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of the decision making behind that and then some of the positives that has come and maybe some of the times that it hasn't necessarily like worked out how Mm -hmm. you expected well you do blends for specific reasons kind of in the moment and sometimes those reasons are completely different than one day than they are the other and it just depends on those plants and that resin and you know like banana OG will just kick off a bunch of white resin no matter how late you harvest it you know I mean it'll be a little bit more golden but it's white overall and every bag is even the 40 bag but something like a sherbet or a cookies will be darker down there and so like you may not want to mix a darker resin with the whiter resin you know so that that's a factor and then another factor is uh the smells obviously like you know you don't want to put something like a golden goat with uh or maybe you would i don't know but uh you know it's just all kind of like in the in the moment there you figure out like okay these flavors might go together well and then there's another thing to say about it like if let's say you popped a bunch of unfeminized seeds and now these are you know they're unfeminized seeds so that every you know i'm going to use the term phenotype here but i'm pretty sure i'm using it correctly different genotypes phenotypes and chemotypes will come from that right? right and so then you can take, you know, if it's like an F1, I've, I've heard Mean Gene on a, one of the breeders forums talking about how if you breed once 
that first hybrid or that first, you know, on FemIC that you're popping, they're going to be a little bit similar to their parents. And then if you do that again, you know, you, uh, that same thing, you just do it again or whatever, that next F2 is going to maybe be different, like vastly different. And that's where you kind of weed out and sift out your different varieties. I'm not a breeder, so I I don't want to speak on it because there's a whole panel of breeders speaking on it. And, you know, I'll just point you in that direction. But I just wanted to say that that first F1 sometimes is a lot like that, the parents. And so it's interesting to do a wash because you'll be like, wow, the banana OG that's that's on a male holy crack, that's pumping off really similar resin as just banana OG by itself. Okay. And they're falling in the micron pores. The pore sizes are, are pretty similar, those windows. And so that's real neat. So like, let's blend all those unfeminized seeds that are kind of similar to each other and make it into something you can't recreate. And so there's like all these different, fa- you know, different factors that go into it. And that's one of them. And um, one of them is called guava cooler. I, I, I named, I term guava cooler because it, it smelled like a microbrewery inside the, whenever I was washing it, when I put the water on it and the ice on the plant, it just smelled like, almost like you were brewing beer. I don't know. I can't explain it, but it, it was like, it reminded me of an alcoholic beverage, first of all. And then the water was like pinkish purple, kind of like a guava, like the color of a guava. And so I don't know the exact color of that, like <laughs> term for the color, but purple ish. And so I was like, all right, guava cooler, because that's an alcoholic beverage and it's purple. Right. <laughs> and so like that fits. And, you know, you can't recreate that that F1 blend, I guess is what you'd call it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that definitely, I think, again, is what makes your hash unique. Like you're not making it in huge batches and these types of situations, it's things that it's kind of like a one time, one time thing. Right. Totally. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Like one of the years I went to Emerald Cup, we brought at, at the BioVortex booth. Like there, there was an assortment of different stuff that I had never really washed, and we just did just because, you know, we were planning for the cup and wanted to show off other stuff. And at the time, it worked out real well. But there, yeah, there, the, there's those strains that will always work and work in that right area. And I just really like like the banana OG, the Mandarin, the Mandarin. Surprisingly, I know people don't like citrus some certain people aren't like into the citrus or whatever but you know some people are so i still like to provide to those folks that love that and so the mandarin though my point was is that it catches very similar to the banana g you'd be so surprised it's like a g it's like one of those gmo flavors the mandarin where it just every bag is a real nice color and yeah man i love it i like the mandarin and the banana g yeah and i know a couple of years ago <laughs> from you, yeah you might have not even been a couple of years you had like uh that cross that you had for a while, what was it called? The orange is the new... Yeah, orange is the new Milena. It was just two parts banana OG, one part mandarin, because the mandarin, limonene, or whatever citrus terp is in there, just overpower, you know, overpower. So I wanted to put more banana OG on it, and it worked out. Called it OITMB, orange is the new banana. <laughs> Credit my girlfriend for that. She came up with that. So yeah. Yeah, man. Well, cool. So again, towards the end, I like to ask, like, questions kind of all over the place totally not to put you on the spot but (laughs) i know you mentioned before we talked that you had have a couple things in mind some new tech that you've been thinking about and i wanted to see if you wanted to or can talk anything about 
that. Damn. I think that the only thing that I can say is that I really got un- something under the works. I don't want to blow it out of proportion because it's not like it's that that awesome. But like, I feel like people that really love hash and you know do similar things might think it's kind of interesting, and they should be excited. And I'm very excited. I'm so excited that I, I wish I could ex- tell you, but I can't. I can't tell you right now. It might be it might be in two months. I'd be able to tell you, but just right now, I I'm I gotta keep it just myself. I'm sorry. But the point is that I would like to design real night you know i'd like to design things that 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 work real well and if that's something that people like then i would like to you know hopefully maybe start a company selling things that people like to buy that are really nicely designed right and that work well and so if there's a possibility like almost general like it'll be related to the the tools of the craft yes it will be related to the tools of the craft and i'm also interested in kind of i don't know this is something i could do without ruining it like the pump sprayer you know Come One day, I'd, you know, I want to I, I want to share it and, you know, make it open source. And that's going to be something that's happening. And that's why I'm like super excited. And I wanted to even talk about it with you earlier. But, yeah, you know, the pump sprayer, like, you know, there's different designs to the pump sprayer you could do, you, you know, different designs to the work bucket. Like, I don't want to get, you know. I'm not trying to give away all my good ideas. You know, <laughs> right. I, I will. Like one day, I will. You guys will totally. You know. And if you don't want to pay for my product, you could probably make it yourself. And maybe I'll release a DIY, like way to do it. You know. Right. So I just, yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about it, but I also didn't because I don't want to tease people. And and it's not like the things that I'm creating are going to change the game or something. Like it's like I'm like that's why I like talking about how the bubble bags like those may not go extinct because even though people are trying to to make them go extinct, I don't. They're such an efficient tool. And, uh, you know, things like that could be introduced, real efficient tools um, that, you know, you want to just buy just because, you know, like, duh, that works, you know, real well. Right. That's what I'd like to get out to folks and start sharing that and, you know, maybe bring this third wave water or third third wave. uh, That's a a coffee company that sells mineral for water, (laughs) third wave water for coffee water to extract. By the way, when you brought that up, I was laughing because you showed me yesterday you have two different containers for water here. One is, <laughs> one is for like your RO drinking water. Yeah. And then there's a whole other like water thing that's just dedicated for the coffee. And you said it has like particular minerals, right? And that's what I actually like. I, you know, the third wave, that's why I got confused there. Third wave is also a company, third wave water that they make minerals for. So you can add to your RO water. Right. And then when you extract your coffee with that water, you're extracting all the right things. And I just wanted to experiment with it. I didn't know if it was real or not. Like, what are these people, this company's claiming, is it real? Like, I'd like to try it out. And yeah. actually, you know, the coffee is definitely different than it would have been, you know, whatever. Like, it, the, wa- the water's not super hard. And, um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, the concept, though, uh, and just kind of funny. But, no, it's cool. I appreciate you, like, even giving what you did. And so, yeah, oh, you yeah. know, it might not be something like you said like revolutionary, but you know, again, simple, effective tools yeah. uh, are definitely a good thing. And I think a helpful thing, especially in something that's so hands-on. Yeah. And it would be, you know, also for the consumer too. That's what's kind of exciting for me is like even the consumer that's just buying a gram or two every once in a while would be stoked on this thing. Cool. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about something that's kind of like, I don't know, I call it a tough teach subject, but prices you know i'll preface this by saying (laughs) i believe that anybody should be able to charge whatever they want or whatever they feel something is worth because either there's going to be a market for people that are going to pay for it right and or not 
right? And mm-hmm. so the market kind of will set itself in that regard. Right. But as a very like small batch hash maker, how do you go about setting your prices? Well, it has a lot to do with this. I mean, mainly for me, I'm with the reason why I've specified so is like zeroed in on the hash that I make like Mandarin and Banana OG, for example, last couple of years, that's mainly what I've been cranking out. And it's because we were really familiar with what kind of money they made of the flour from that. So if I'm not matching that or going a little above that, like why would they want to work with with simple Adam and the donuts, like the stupid donut guy, like why would they, you know, like, you know what I mean? So I have to, you know, I gained that relationship over a few years and then finally got the plant, you know, in the freezers and all that's just a lot of money, man. And especially now, like in times where people are struggling, jumping through hoops, getting, you know, I like really respect all those folks that are going through all that trouble. Cause I don't know, man, if you're just, if you're just hooking up, you know, not really, I don't know how to say it, but like if you show up to the competition and you're selling stuff for half the prices as your, your good friend that's working his ass off, like whatever, let's say Brandon Thurgeon, for example, let's bring him. So, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, dude, you're undercutting like this, this is very quality hash and people are, you know, like, why would you not? This is kind of, you know, that that's just a small example. Right. That would be a factor too. Like, are you cutting out, you know, like what are, what's the market is basically how I look at it whenever I do that. Yeah. Right. Sell hash. So. Yeah, and it, and it depended on like the year, like when it was two fifteen, it was like drastically a high price. It was like two hundred twenty dollars a gram, and out of nineteen forty four ocean at one point, for and they were selling in half gram form because it just is how you would do that. And uh, yeah, man, so I don't agree with that. Ten a half gram at that point from nineteen forty four. Right, plus tax. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's always kind of killer too. Yeah. Especially or maybe that's plus tax. I don't know, but still, it's it's a it's a hefty price for sure. But at the same time, like I said, if there's people who like want to pay for it or can pay for it or are willing to pay for it, right? then more power to whoever is buying it and yeah. whoever's selling it, right? Yeah, man. Totally. So anyways, yeah, I just kind of wanted to touch on that because I'm always like curious. We've been hanging out with Huxley, your dog, for a couple of days and he's been hanging around here and... Um, you know, again, going deep into your feed, I found the story about him kind of running off and then reappearing. Oh, yeah, totally. Several, yeah, man. several months later. Yeah, he was lost for eight months or like just up, like getting it to eight months. And uh, it's a long time. Yeah. So just in case I go off on a tangent and forget like how to finish the story, I'll end the story right now. I found him in Oregon, in Medford, Oregon, and it was because he was chipped. He had all my information in him, but he had been scanned multiple times at multiple vets before they ever found that information. Because you can scan them and scan the wrong part of the body, maybe not pick up on the chip, or maybe you're just not really care, or you think that this is their dog, so you don't scan them or something, you know, I don't know what was happening, but they weren't finding him for a long time. And, uh, apparently this, you know, I was out on the highway 36. It's kind of out there, not in the middle of nowhere, but it's, you know, a couple hours, it's two or three hours away from where we are right now on the coast in this marine fog layer on the coast. And this is two hours East, you know, in the mountains. And so I was working out on a, just a, a garden there at the, the stage of trimming. You know, I had been there all the way from turning the soil to prepping to, you know, to pruning to trimming. And now we're at trimming and I was working all day 
and uh, letting him run around with all the dogs just like I had throughout the season. And then he was he was gone one day, and I thought like for sure he just would never come back. And it was like starting to snow, and like day goes by, I have to sleep without him and stuff. And it was getting weird and super sad. And then uh, I was just hoping, you know, he had he had ran and found another farm or something, and, and they're feeding him, which is basically what happened. This guy found him. He was actually not eating all kinds of good food at a farm where they found him. He was actually starving. And you could see his ribs and stuff. And it was super malnourished and uh, super sad. But this dude found him, thankfully, alive and uh, took him back to his house where he had a female Jack Russell. By the way, my dog's a Jack Russell, male Jack Russell. And he hadn't been neutered at that point. And that guy ended up taking him to the vet a couple times and then eventually neutering him and kind of working him in with his female Jack Russell and the pit bull that he had. And so he lived with that little family of dogs for like six months. And then that guy was like, look, I don't need another dog. You know, I have two Jack Russells and a pit bull. I should get rid of one of these Jack Russells. And he got rid of my dog to his parents in Medford, Oregon. They lived on a winery. Okay. And so I'd write, like, they'd go to the, the vet eventually eight months later and scan him and give me a call or my mom a call. And then my mom called me. And then uh, I drove all the way up to Medford and there was an oval window where Huxley was behind it, like the door, there was oval window so he could see me before we even opened the door. He just started pissing all over himself and all <laughs> over everybody because he couldn't control his bowels. He, yeah. You know, because he had like been through Guantanamo Bay and Texas and all that traveling with me. And, you know, I was his owner. Like, and so the family was like, oh, I guess this is his owner, you know? And like really because of that experience, like him freaking out. And then like we let him out and he just ran all over the orchards, just like back and forth, back and forth, just darting around. And, uh, they were like, all right, this is his dog. We'll give, <laughs> yeah. we'll give it back to him. And so that's cool. And I drove him back down here and he's been here ever since. Yeah. That's a, that's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. um, and again, it's like it just, a movie. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it's hard to believe. Right. But I'm glad that it turned out that way. And like I said, he's, <laughs> he's here chilling out right now. Totally, dude. So is there, I mean, maybe there's various people, but if there's someone that comes to mind outside of the cannabis world, Maybe more like of a public figure that you respect. Outside of the cannabis world. All right. Yes. Well, he's kind of inside and outside. Jeff Lonefolds. Yes. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name, last name properly. But he wrote the Teaming with Microbes and Teaming with Nutrients. And then the, the I think he wrote a new book now on autoflowering. I heard him talking about it in an interview. It's kind of exciting. I like that guy a lot. I gave him a dab of, a dab of banana OG one year at the Emerald Cup. I was just tripping out on how I was dabbing out Jeff Lowenfolds, who wrote Teaming with Microbes. And then uh, that yeah, guy, I like that guy. That, uh, yeah. Robert Clark, you know, who wrote the Hashish. Right. He's neat. Oh, yeah, man. I feel bad because there's probably some just countless amount of people that I look up to, and they're really neat folks out there. Yeah. In the hash world specifically. Like um, yeah, man. Damn it. That's good. Maybe on another podcast, I'll yeah. <laughs> come at you with some better answers. <laughs> a favorite plant of yours outside of cannabis? Yeah. I mean, those biodynamic accumulators people talk about, those are, my, those are probably some favorites. I like the tropical fruits and trees and shrubs and little plants. I like them. I like a lot of them, but um, the ones that secrete or that give off those amazing scents and smells like, like sage. Or um, um, that one in my garden that's a uh, flaming lips. It's some kind of salvia, some kind of, but it just releases these crazy terps. You tried them on your hand. That was crazy. Yeah. It just brings in all the pollinators, you know. Those plants that bring in the mediators, 
I really like that. You know, you'll bring in all different kinds of birds and insects that wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for those plants, those kind of plants, you know? Right. There's a kiwi hops are cool. Uh, the bio, the dynamic accumulators, like the, the comfrey they grow there. And every week and a half or so I cut down a big bushel of it and soak it in some water and then water my plants with that and grow my own nutrients, you know? Yeah, and you said comfrey is actually something that grows comfrey rapidly, and then right? It's that other um starts with a V and it's a red flower. Damn. Not verbena. No. Yeah, I forget the other name, but there's another flower that's similar, you know, it mines nutrients and or whatever mines these these plant available compounds from from the soil. From the soil you know, right. from the ground. So you can just plant it. You know, I heard Dragonfly Earth Medicine talking about it all the time. Like Thistle, thing, things like thistle and, and plants like that, that, you know, if you have a hundred smart pots, why not dedicate like five of them to growing your own nutrients and then making some teas and right and watering with that instead of having to go to the store and pop open a big bag of stuff and all that, you know, try, you know, try to do what you can with, with what you have available right there at the source too is really neat. Like if you have a bunch of ground litter, like leaf litter, you know, learn, learn how to use it and learn how to use like that. Learn how to sequester carbon, you know? Right. I think it's neat. And the the plants that all really work well in a system like that, are, I'm a fan of. <laughs> cool. This is a post that you made a long time ago. Okay. I don't remember what year it was. Oh I my just copy-pasted it because oh I found it funny. <laughs> and it said, a long while back, I heard that 150U hash will put hair on your chest. And... <laughs> Dude, I wish I, you brought up multiple posts that I just don't even remember. Honestly, it's been so long, but like, and, and I, I used to like curate like the content that I would put out. Honestly, I'm not like really proud of a lot of the stuff, you know, like I was a little bit and a little bit more negative than I should have been in certain times. And like, you know, to, I, you know, it's been a kind of a growing up process for me online too. And sometimes I'll post and drop or like sometimes I'll post and read all the comments and like them all the ones I like and other times I'm not not into that or right you know so I don't remember that post specifically and why I said that but but I just found it funny because you know now I think at the time I didn't see a bunch of 150 you know and I was just I'm assuming that's why it was made and like what I found funny is like now not only with like the change in genetics but like I think more understanding of like when to pull plants when you're making hash and whatnot, you know, the question now becomes like, you know, when 150 starts becoming more normal, which I feel like it is, mm-hmm. you know, should we all get ready for like having super hairy chests? <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to have to take that one back. But, uh, but it is kind of funny, like the whole char, like people bitching about char on the nail and right. like the stuff that left over. It's like, it's kind of funny to say like, well, it's an acquired taste. Right. And it puts it puts hair on your chest. <laughs> you know, just to draw because it's like it's not worth arguing anymore. Like they're gonna like it or not. And yeah. it's whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was more <laughs> random joke. But yeah, totally. I like it. Um, <laughs> some of your favorite spots in Arcata, and those can include like nature yeah. or I guess places to eat, because I know you were saying service can be a challenge. Yeah, man. Anywhere along these river reaches, like anywhere in these watersheds. It's amazing. The watersheds in the Pacific Northwest, Mad River spots on Mad River, just down the street from me, and are awesome. Like I need to take him swimming there today. 
this little little natural born swimmer we got on our hands back here. He's like going crazy right now because we're not at the beautiful river. Right. But uh, then just five minutes down the street, you'll go to the community forest. And that's like a nice, real nice forest that's managed in a way to promote that old growth canopy almost like they're, they're working towards that old growth there. Most of the trees over there are second generation. Okay. So like we, we came and logged all these trees, you know, the majority of these trees have been logged. So now like these huge trees that we think are old growth really aren't like there's, there's only certain patches of true old growth canopies and stuff out there, Okay. but they're, you know, approaching that out here. And so it's just right down the street. It's really neat. And it's like going to church, like people talk about. It really is like that. And you can breathe cleaner in there. And uh, just uh, everything about this place is really neat, dude. The greenery and the, um, so a couple of cool places. Strawberry Rock is what a lot of the locals talk about. Strawberry Rock. It's like a, probably a two, uh, two mile hike out to, you know, past this quarry. And then you climb up this huge rock and you can, you're all of a sudden looking down on the redwood canopies okay. and looking at the ocean too. That's awesome. Yeah. And so that's a really neat thing people talk about out here. Then you walk by a tree sit. So people are up in the tree. I don't know if they're up there anymore, but it used to be a couple of years ago. People were sitting in trees and like making sure green diamond didn't cut them down or whatever. I don't know if that's still a thing going on, but then other spots. Yeah. I wish I had my friend who's a, the dunes, the coastal dunes. It's kind of a rare ecosystem. I mean, it is a rare ecosystem right here. You know, we drive to the coast at the beach and there's these dunes where the where the snowy plover, the super rare species of bird is living there and it's all tied into the dunes, you know, like there's dune, there's a dune ecology that's different than the redwood ecology, you know, and right. just the Pacific Northwest is real neat. Where else? Damn it. All the way up Fickle Hill, real cool river spots up there, man. People that are local in Humboldt are going to be like, what the hell is going through your head whenever you, you recommend that place? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, that's cool, though. I mean, you know, yeah. that, if anybody ever comes up here, those are some places that they can. Yeah, Arcadia Community Park, you yeah. know, super easily accessible. And and then just different spots like along the Highway 101, like the Avenue of the Giants. And there's different old growth little groves that you can go and visit. And those are real cool. Like, it's just there's nothing like it. There's one called Headwaters Trail in Eureka. And you can hike out about 15 or so ish miles. And there's this loop of all old growth. You know, you, you hike that far out to get to them. Everything before that was second generation trees, super big, like almost just as tall as those old growth. But when you get to the old growth, you're just like, Oh my God, like this is just amazing. You almost walk into a different climate. Like you're walking into a cloud almost like, and you just feel it feels wetter and and more, you know, almost like a trap, like the, the humidity is different. And, yeah, that's interesting. Um, plants are, yeah. So cool. Again, this is something that you wrote and, you know, you, your mindset might have changed on this, but I thought I'd bring it up because you're one of the few people that I've seen that, at least as far as I, I know, you haven't commercially really put rosin out and you <laughs> may have, but it, I just thought it was funny the way you phrase it. And it says you could rosin a donut but you just fuck up with sprinkles, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so what, I mean, you know, what does that say about your, your initial thoughts on rosin and maybe how that's evolved and will you ever be a guy who produces rosin over resin? Right. Yeah. Well, keep in mind like that all, like, like I said, I was a little bit immature at some points during the history of this, but with that said, 
that was at a point where rosin was at its infancy. And like, we were just starting to figure out that like, oh, hey, you know, like it takes a lot more pressure to press flour. And look at soil grown online. Like that guy's a G, like he's just pressing like a t-shirt press, just <laughs> pressing a bunch of nugs. Like what is going on right now? So like I was coming from all these different people's opinions on what rosin is and what, you know, flour rosin, all that stuff. Flour rosin is better than hash rosin, hash rosin, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's like what? No, it's like, I think that it's real cool that you can put bubble hash in a 25 micron, ball it up. And then rub on that a little bit with friction and rosin will start to come out a little bit. You know, there's something about really high quality hash rosin that is superior in my opinion now after experiencing all everybody's, you know, everybody's experimenting and doing all kinds of cool shit. Right. And, you know, I've had Dablogic sauce or whatever they call it. I don't know what they call it, but. Yeah, the, the HT. Yeah, and then there's training. other people around here doing that same style stuff. And that's real cool, man. Like it's something completely different, a different flavor, a different mouthfeel almost. Effect, I feel like as well, like it changes, it changes how it affects you. So, um, yeah, in the sense of like being back in the day where I was like making it micron specific hash and and putting, slapping a donut on it and calling it a day, to me, you were fucking up the sprinkles because you were just squeezing my perfectly grated hash. But now it's like, you know there's room for rosin out there. Like this is happening and maybe I need to get in on that wave. <laughs> so maybe I would put a donut on some of the rosin that I make in the future. Right. Yeah. And so for example, <laughs> I know one of the latest things you've been working with is harvest moon. And yeah, you know, I think you washed some of the GMO. Mm-hmm. We did two really nice washes, the GMO and then the ZMO or we just called ZMO cause it's the Skittles is in there. Okay. Makes it easy. And, uh, Seems kind of obvious called ZMO, but uh, then, uh, yeah, that's all. So that's what we've done so far. And um, yeah, Harvest Moon is just, I love that garden and what he's doing. He's really neat. Yeah, yeah. We the Master about, Kush and just like that. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's we tried sick. the Hindu last night and. Hindu, oh my gosh. Yeah. We, we couldn't even talk after we hit the Hindu. Yeah, we decided to do the interview today because of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was um, way too high and we had just eaten and like, I was just so high on Hindu Kush from Harvest Moon Garden, like paranoid schizophrenic high. But that's me. That's like my, I'll get that way. Especially if I don't smoke weed for a long, you know, right. I like to say that I smoke weed, but then my girlfriend will give me shit. Like, you don't smoke weed, but I do sometimes, but it's definitely like, I don't have a tolerance to it, you know? So whenever I'm smoking that full spectrum, like, yeah, smoking, weed, it, smoking like herb is different. Mm-hmm. I feel, I mean, it's, Especially if it's really good yeah, indoor, for sure. you know, it's going to be depending on your mindset. But the reason I bring it up is all that. I mean, there's no rosin coming out of that, right? All that staying in like. I may make it. rosin out of the Zemo. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just sent him in the process of getting a nice press or maybe collabing or something, but I, I don't, I need to get a press. Basically, I've just been procrastinating on that. Gotcha. And I grammed it out and he, um, yeah, that's. The majority of it is going to to micron specific cash though lose. Okay. This is always kind of a tough question, but I like asking it just because I'm curious. But if you had to pick your favorite three hash makers, mm. who would those be? God damn it. Well, we can leave out Matt Rice since he's retired, and we can leave out. Is Nick he still doing like the essential extracts, like cranking that out? I believe he's doing Essential Extracts uh, California now. And I mean, I saw he recently processed some lemon bean. 
yeah for somebody so i think he's still active but i know he's also just like doing a lot of stuff right events and well just to go way back i mean i'd say nicotine and then i'd say full flavor because that was some of even though matt was cranking off real good microplane hash and i had bought a few that was the first time i saw it in such a large quantity and realized like okay you know and that just yeah full flavor for sure kind of um and then some of the folks like you know there there's a damn it i forget the other person but there's been like some real real good ash makers posted on instagram like back in 2013 2014 you know like baker's bubble that's not being posted all about that. anymore the guy was cranking off real good hash and then uh boo boo's bubble i bet you could get brandon to talk about that boo boo's bubble from, <laughs> that was brandon but i don't know <laughs> so like things like that i like that the um et extracts People don't talk about him anymore. I don't know if he's do- or she or whoever was doing that. I don't know if they're doing I that. I don't anymore. think I'm familiar with but them. Those kind, of, yeah. They, they it was super high quality water hash and and BHO. If I'm okay. not mistaken, I'm not sure, but kind of the, that Shatterbro era, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember. And this is just kind of a, a side point that I thought was funny because I don't see them often. But one of the guys that you used to, I guess, smoke. It was a uh, or maybe it wasn't you, but. I don't know if you know triometry. Um, no. Yeah. The, uh, or I might if I saw, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think it was this guy, Griffin, and he used to be kind of in this area as well. Okay. Doing it. So anyways, I, it must have been somebody else's feed that I got confused with. But well, I might. I might. I, I don't mean to be rude. No, 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 no. Yeah, I don't. Uh, the user, remembering people's usernames and names, and, right. you know, it all kind of gets mixed up in there, especially when it's years ago. Right. Last question, which has kind of become the standard uh, for the show, but if you could hear someone else being interviewed on here, yeah, that's a great question. Who would that be? That's a great question. How about Nick T? That'd be sick. And then uh, Mila, like fly to Amsterdam, bro. Get is she still in Amsterdam? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, um, obviously Frenchie would be cool. Let's see here. No, that's good. I mean, that's that's three right there. Okay. So, no, that is three. Yeah. Yeah. That's three. But yeah, no, I, I definitely. Uh, it's I hard think, to choose three. Sorry. No, uh, no. And Robert Clark, you know, like maybe Robert Clark, he wrote the book Hashish. I've like thought about for sure. You know, even though it's not, you know, the hipster branded thing. Like no, he, and that's cool. <laughs> I mean, like that's kind of what I would like. It's exactly. just like to get all these different yeah. things. And there's so many people that I want to talk to. You know, putting out one a month uh, kind of limits that, obviously. But at right. the same time, yeah, yeah. I think those would all be interesting guests. You know, Mila, Frenchie definitely have their a very different, like, historical view, mm-hmm. I think, on hash, mm-hmm. as opposed to some of the kind of the younger generation. And then, like you said, Nicotee, I feel like kind of was one of those guys that was like a crossover, right? He started here. He did go with Mila. I don't know exactly. It'd be interesting to talk to him about his experience yeah, there. So. totally. So yeah, well, cool, man. I really appreciate everything. It's been super fun hanging out with you these last couple of days. You opened up your house to me and everything. So I, I, again, I'm just very appreciative of your time. And is there anything else that you would like to say? Man, I appreciate you. Like you came out all the way out here just to talk to the donut guy. So I'm stoked. <laughs> and then uh, I have never, I like this forum where like you can just talk about stuff i love podcasts and i've always kind of wanted to be on one and like see what that's like and this is really neat that you gave me that experience and i just feel super lucky and this is awesome and thank you (laughs) yeah no i i'm again i'm super stoked to do it and so 
Again, this is Adam. You can follow him on Instagram at Simply Adam. Two E's. Yes, two E's. <laughs> you can call me Simple Adam if you want, but it'd be cool if you we did, but it's all good. <laughs> I've gotten over it. <laughs> so um, it's okay. But yeah, he's so the creator of the Ice Wax Donuts. And thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.